change a little bit, but uh, you see, like uh, that always, uh, always happen. There few plastic table uh, in the restaurant now, mm. and this. Uh, but I mean, the, the the real nice shape of the beach. You must have been delighted when you found it. Yeah, because I went through a lot of uh, places. And uh, every time it was something different. I said, now, where where we put the camera? What we're going to have? But when we arrive here with the car, we can see from the shape of that is a real studio. Yes. You have the hotel here. Yeah. You have the sea. And the, the kids can play, and it's, I think it's a lovely you, you couldn't have built it better, actually. And especially having those rocks there, which yes, breaks the, up the line well, of the Well, it's marvelous for the kids because they're there, there's no car. It's very safe place, you see, because they have a lot of fun. Do you see the shot, do you see the image in your mind's eye exactly when you go out to shoot it? Or do you just wait till something about the landscape or the character. No, no, what you say is right. I mean, for instance, here I stay by myself four days alone, mm. watching all the possibility of shooting. And uh, the moment we start shooting, I knew exactly where to put the camera. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome, welcome to YBR Presents, a series focusing on the lives and legacies of individual subjects within early cinema's past that transcended into the new frontiers that broke into a new age. The last time we were together was with the suspense's most esteemed master, Mr. Alfred Hitchcock. But now, as we move away from our traditional theater and into the lecture hall, we shall be treated to a different type of master. A master of silent comedy in the days when silent comedy had long since passed. Starting as a mime in Paris and working through a series of short films, this gentleman would come to create a reappreciation for the language of slapstick and wordless hilarity while upping the stakes. Yes, this master of silence was not incapable of sound, and in fact, showed a meticulous care with sound design that would bring a whole new dimension to the world of pantomime and visual humor. Just like Hitch, he used these techniques of pure cinema to his advantage to create a legacy still felt to this very day. He is Francois, he is Hulot, he is Jacques Tati. And as the ballet who has already started this journey with our bicycles, um, t- riding down the French countryside with a look at Tati's origins and Jure de Fête, his first film, we now hop in our bucket of junk Salomon AL3 and cruise loudly and alarmingly into the seaside resort town of St. Marc-sur-Mur with one 
Monsieur Houlette for a vacation that will remind us what a vacation should be and how to find joy in the smaller parts of life. But we need a travel buddy. And since the Ballyhoo wishes to bring its old friends on any path, we are having along our initial point of contact with Tati, who will journey with us through his works as the series unfolds. He is a screenwriter, a board member of CFVA, and a man who revels in cycling as much as he does paper hats. Please welcome back Sterling Cook. Thank you for that introduction, Zach. Welcome back, sir. So we owe the audience an explanation. <laughs> uh, please go on. Well, first of all, um, the audience can't see it, but uh, Sterling is uh, fully garbed out in his uh, sailor outfit and his Hulo cosplay. And <laughs> is that robe? <laughs> yeah, I didn't have. Um, I didn't really have beach attire, and it's a little. It's a little cooler in November, it's, so I'm wearing it, a silk robe. It's like Hugh Hefner if he were on a boat tour <laughs> in Brittany, France. <laughs> yes. Ex- oh, yes. Exactly. Cla- he's got to go classy with it. Um, no. Um, so. We did our episode on uh, Jour de Fête, um, and it was uh, very well received. And the I didn't realize the appeal of Tati by people that I had known from other fandoms. Um, uh, a fellow named Ed Page, who frequents the Jack Benny boards, um, he was liking and commenting all over the place on Jacques Tati. And um, my pal Sai from Film Club was was engaging in discussion on Jour de Fête and its elegance. And the more I kept going through the edit on that episode and re-going back to Tati with like clips on YouTube and such, I got enamored by this. So I plunked down $70 on the complete Tati Criterion box set. And I basically messaged you and said, you know... Uh, I was going to do John Houston to follow up Hitch, but I think that this uh, this has captured my attention too much that we have to do some Tati talk, as it were. <laughs> um, so, hence, that is why you're aboard for this journey. This will be a, a new territory for uh, both of us, kind of, because what's funny is is that you, lo- you know a little bit, you know more about Tati than I do. Um, certainly I'm a novice here and what I'm going to be doing through this while you are revisiting things. Um, although I believe there are some ones that you still haven't seen yet, um, from his later work. I can't, I haven't seen traffic. I haven't seen parade. Okay. Um, that might be a few of the shorts Mm -hmm. I need to get into. Yeah. So we'll still have some new discoveries between us two. Um, and for me though, uh, I still have not watched the shorts, but I do. We're, we'll plan a shorts episode at some point to kind of do mini little looks at that short period in his life. But I'm basically going to be learning about Tati as this series goes along. Um, I'm not going to know the end of Tati's life until we are very much done with the series. So I'm going to hold back. <laughs> truly will be a tour de Tati. Uh, yes. And only upon completion do we get a yellow jacket. Yeah. Oh, yes, exactly. Uh, do sorry, we get I'm to, really in cosplay mode, I guess. Do uh, we get to make uh, plastic wristbands for ourselves that are too ha- too popular in the 2000s? Oh, like, absolutely. Yeah, Tati Strong or something like um, that. <laughs> oh, there's a better pun in there. Uh, I'll get back to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but three really, hours later. Yeah, no, I'm... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at some point during the actually, uh, listeners, you just uh, write in uh, your what you want on the Livestrong bracelet. And, yeah, uh, we'll you know the best one will win. Yeah, exactly. But the be- but the difference is is that we'll have it'll be Tati themed, so it'll have a guy with a with a pipe sticking mm-hmm. out and leaning. And <laughs> I will be uh, getting blood transfusions of my own blood, um, but it, <laughs> there's nothing really in my system, so it'll just be painful and convoluted. <laughs> uh, that's so cool to hear that this series. 
uh, both struck an audience, like among your fans mm -hmm. and yeah. companions uh, and peers, and also sparked this interest in you. I know we kind of pitched it as a one-off just because I've been sort of trying to get on a show with you for years. Yeah. And then for it to turn into uh, a fascination of yours and a series, uh, it's an honor and a privilege to be here. And I'm very happy to do it. And I'll tell you, as we go along in today's episode in particular, um, I found something in Hulo in particular that probably gave me the basis as to why he was fascinating me. Mm. Um, it's not a, foolproof thing um but it but it, it will come up along the conversation but something as discussed in the intro is that we are talking about a master of soundscape too which is honestly it's a great uh, or a great uh, notion for a podcast to talk about a master of sounds um the 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 trick with this will be that it still is a primarily pure cinema visual medium we're talking about here in terms of tatis films pure cinema engaging in as little dialogue card and or sound as possible as Hitch uh, pertained to his audience. Um, similar to Hitch, Tati is very specific with his sound design. However, Tati uses it for different purposes. And one of the things that we talked about in Jour de Fête was the fact that that film has a plethora of dialogue. And here we are kind of thrust into nothingness. Um, but that doesn't mean there isn't dialogue in the film, but it's very much realmed into unimportance. Um, mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. banal, but for a good reason. And it is also meant to capture realism. Um, and I have a, a quote from Tati that he did with an interview with a French television program, um, near the release time, uh, or the re-release time of Playtime. He said, um, in regards to him being criticism for his dialogue, he said, mm. but the year I shot Hulot, Sasha Gurchi wasn't vacationing in St. Mark, neither was Henry Jenson, and Michel Adyard was not writing dialogue yet. So if you will, I wanted it to be real people on vacation. That's why the dialogue is that of real vacationers. It's not something a writer thought up. The banal nature of those lines, when the woman says a seashell, that's just what she says. You might say it's not a great line, fine, but she but when she finds a seashell, her husband throws it away. It makes sense. It makes comic sense. She says, look a boat. That's what you hear people say. I'm sure you've heard that at a seaside or at a harbor. There's nothing surprising about seeing a boat in a harbor. Consider it contributing something new to notice the humor around us. And so here's here's where I find something interesting in there is that I think I wonder if we're spoiled a little bit when it comes to modern film about having dialogue that's either clever or catchy or giving us exposition in a way that doesn't feel like exposition. And there is something to be said about realism in dialogue that was very prevalent in the 60s new waves of all kinds, whether it was the French new wave, neorealism, the American new wave. Mm -hmm. There was an attempt for realistic dialogue. And I don't know how you feel about it. I would love to know if how you feel about it. But I do feel like there's a there's a tinge of it in the 90s before it starts dissipating into the mid-2000s, late-2000s. Um, and all that's to say, uh, when you think of Tati and his use of dialogue what what is the thing that strikes you about 
about it that makes you want to go back to it. I am curious about that because it'd be easy to just appreciate him on the physical comedy alone. But you were the one who mentioned his use of dial, his sparing use of dialogue. And I'm wondering what about that intrigues you? Yeah, Tati, um, I love that quote. I, I love how French it is. Mm-hmm. You know, that is something you would hear at a seaside. Yeah. Um, but the, yeah, the beauty of Tati's dialogue is the way that he's using it very sparsely throughout. And it's just a matter of, um, yeah, characters kind of observing on things. Uh, it's not so much like what they say uh, that's important, but I think when when they say it, like within the scenes, within the gags, um, he, it might be that same documentary, but he's talking about his use uh, and we'll get into like foreground background again because that's a big thing of his. But he's, Yes, I have something for that here that is very prevalent to what we're going to be discussing. Um, he's mentioning the way that you can use dialogue to direct um, the attention or even to, as a special effect, to add a layer, like a spatial layer to the film. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's got like some marvelous jokes yeah, and some good lines, um, but often just by deciding who it is that's talking mm-hmm. um, and where they are in space, it redirects your attention, um, sometimes away from an upcoming gag or sometimes like leading you towards a gag. Yeah. Um, and so, so that's something that, amazed me about Hulo, um, Mr. Hulo's Holiday, which, by the way, I kept thinking for the longest time it was M. Hulo's Holiday or the way it was um, pronounced. And I'm like, no, that's not Zach. You just thought that up in your fucking head. It's like the Kazam Shazam controversy on the Internet. (laughs) You know, to be fair, I have sort of a Mandela effect where I remember saying M. Hulo. Yeah. But in in French, uh, you know, Mr. or Monsieur is abbreviated as M. Oh, 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 so we're not wrong. But we're not right either. Perhaps there's print somewhere. Hmm. Can we say that we're just in the middle? Malcolm in the middle. M in the middle. There you go. M in the middle, if yeah, you want. Monsieur yeah. in the middle. <laughs> um, I'm doing a reboot. A French Malcolm in the middle. French reboot. Malcolm. Monsieur. Hulot in the middle. <laughs> it's it's the same family, but Hulot's just stuck in there for some reason. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, Dewey never talks. He would be a good Hulot. Ooh, there you go. So you've got you've got the Reese kid. Malcolm, and then just Hulo, and he's just taller than them, but he's younger than them too. His hands are so big and, too. And oddly enough, he does still look like Brian Cranston. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Harry Beck and all. Oh yeah. Um, um, now, Jinx. What do you owe me a Coke? Now, um, oh, I owe you a Coke. Um, Earl Grey tea work. Oh, that, yeah, that'll suffice. Okay. Um, so now, here comes the part where we start diving into Tati and Monsieur Monsieur Hulo's holiday. So. As we discussed in the previous episode, Jour de Fête is a big hit in France. Mm-hmm. Tati has the world on a string when it comes to French cinema. He's getting offers. They want the Postman back, guys. They want more of the Postman's adventures. They want Francois to electric boogaloo. They want, they want Francois, Francois goes to Italy, something like that. They Francois want... meets the Bride of Frankenstein, Ooh, that... which actually I would like to see. <laughs> the Bride of Frankenstein, that takes the cake. <laughs> um, quick side note, I, I went through all the universal horrors because of uh, this podcast mm. during October. Um, so fun. So thank you for that. No, you're welcome. And I'll tell you, because you told me you'd watched Invisible Man recently. Yeah, Claude Rains is a beast. Isn't it funny how this film carries shades of that? 
Hmm. Mm. To be fair, this is not something I came up with, ladies and gentlemen. This is coming from one of the beauties of this criterion set is is that because it's Tati and because it's uh, uh, world cinema, there are theorists upon theorists upon theorists upon <laughs> who um, who will uh, get into the dissection of any filmmaker outside of the U.S. or in the U.S. for that matter. That's why it's Criterion guys. They're 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 lovely. They got a lovely group going there, and uh, the dissection of Monsieur Hulot's holiday on the Criterion is kind of astounding, and it pointed to an idea of Hulot being a person who comes uh, kind of like basically unintentionally intrudes on the lives of people he's he he comes in and he goes out as quick as he comes in and part of those traces come in visual cues which um spoiler for the discussion up front traces of his footprints going upstairs but we never see him we just see the results of his disaster or in the shot where he's running up toward the hotel but then makes a quick u-turn and then you see a loop-de-loop um in the sand with his footprints and in that shot in the hotel with the wet footprints, a broom does come flying down to indicate some invisible comic force. So there is something about the way Hulo weaves in and out of people's lives. So um, this is a character that is diametrically opposite to uh, Francois in many respects. The big one being Francois talks. Mm-hmm. He talks a lot. Hulo says little to nothing, depending on which version you watch. <laughs> and we talked about Francois being sort of the village tool yes. in the last episode. Um, people get him wound up, they hand him something, and then he accomplishes a task while um, being a blowhard. And um, Hulo is not that. Hulo is this agent of chaos who, <laughs> he's sort of this Bugs Bunny, like without really an agenda. He, he comes in and um disrupts something and then and then sort of fades back off like you were saying there's there's an invisibility to it and i like that you brought up both those gags because i think those two gags are specifically unique in the film Mm -hmm. in terms of being achieved through editing rather than mime yeah so those are the two that like really highlight tati as an editor um, as a director and someone who understands to edit. And we got another one that I'll talk about in the discussion that really impressed me because it's okay. it's kind of a shot we've seen before, but for different effect in American films. Um, but I do want to, uh, we, we, we owe it to Hugh Lowe, who is such a cinematic force in comedy to uh, let Andre Bazin, a uh, noted film critic, describe Hugh Lowe for us. What characterizes Hugh Lowe is that he seems to not dare to truly exist. He raises timidity to the level of ontological principle. He'd uh, he'd rather uh, like to disappear, to pass unnoticed, to blend in his into his surroundings like a grain of sand on the beach, to be no more than a spe- than a specter like the one Tati portrayed in 1945 in Claude Ant Al- Atant Larac's Sylvie et la Fantôme, uh, and contrary to slapstick stars who act like clever show-offs, Hulo dreams of being the invisible man. That's something that's interesting. And also the Magnificent Tati documentary talks mm-hmm. about this. Um, the idea of Hulo being the anti-Chaplin. Mm-hmm. Whereas Chaplin will get away with scrapes by being clever. Hulo's not really looking to be clever. And you talked about the idea of an agent of chaos, which... Of course, to our modern ears, when we hear that, we think of uh, a, 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 a certain gentleman in a nurse's uniform and uh, <laughs> face paint. Yeah, I was going to say Dungeons <laughs> and Dragons, but it, yeah. That's it, it, introduce a little anarchy. 
<laughs> yeah, no, honestly, um, the difference there is the the motivation, like you were mm-hmm. saying. Yeah, I think uh, I think Hulo both wants to be invisible, and then also there is a loneliness. Mm-hmm. Like he also wants to be accepted, and I think it kind of comes into the effect of like he despite himself like you know always uh who is it uh gerald uh wheels has a quote in his review of this where just he says that um every act of monsieur lou dissolves into a degree of catastrophe yes and um he can like never really seem to help that from happening and some and it's like a neutral kind of chaos where sometimes the catastrophe is um an annoyance and sometimes it's a delight Mm -hmm. um but then at the end of the day and we'll get to it at the end of the film, but the way that the movie ends with him being kind of isolated from all the other guests. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Which is heartbreaking, by the way. <laughs> actually, uh, yeah, I, um, I'm like still processing the end of this movie because yeah. I, I don't remember the last time I'd seen it all the way through. Right. And I forgot the kind of melancholy note that it really ends on. Yeah. And um, what's funny is, is that, that um, I feel like, Unlike uh, Francois is relatable, Hulot is extremely relatable. Yeah, I think we all have a little Hulot in us, uh, whether it's general anxieties or paranoias, um, uh, uh, insecurities, things that we we try to act normally, we try to behave in a normal manner, but the truth is, is that nobody in particular is normal. Mm-hmm. And Hulo is that particular notion amplified, mm-hmm. um, which is funny because uh, Tati doesn't really seek out to amplify anything apart from character when it's needed. He doesn't amplify sound effects for any uh, uh, useless purpose. He doesn't amplify a character beyond its means. He certainly doesn't amplify story beyond its means. <laughs> like he, it, it, no, there's the um. There's the other uh, Bazin quote where he's talking about uh, Holiday and he says, uh, never before has time itself been the raw material and almost the subject of the film to the extent that it is here. Yes, um, exactly. This is, and <clears throat> for people wondering what this discussion is going to be like going forward, Jour de Fête, from what I can tell, is the most plot-heavy Tati movie of all time. That's why it surprised me so much. I hadn't seen it, and I'd seen uh, Mononcle and Playtime and and, uh, Holiday. Yeah. This is, for me, coming on the opposite end of never having seen any other Tati prior. When I saw Jour de Fed, I'm like, oh, cool, we're going to get more things like this. Mm -hmm. And then watching Hulo, I'm like, oh, no, this is is what uh, the... uh, some of some of some film fans call artsy fartsy. You hear that? It's the sound of the weird. <laughs> it is the uh, no. It really is a deconstruction. I think. Of yeah. He he really pulls off. You you could say he masters kind of like the Jour de Fet style of filmmaking mm-hmm. yeah. and then decides to unmake it. I'm a big Altman fan. Yes. And uh, and the allure for Altman always has been, for me, someone who like learned all the rules working in television. And then broke them down. And then, yeah, just slowly deconstructed film, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes to a point where even I can't get through it. But um, That's like how I, I feel about Nashville, even though Nashville is great. <laughs> oh, Nashville, uh, I can only watch, like my wife has to leave town. Yeah. Like, I have to watch that movie by myself. <laughs> and I 
I cry every time. Yeah, it's it's a good movie, but um, it's that's one of those for me is where I'm just like I can't I can't sit in this world too much longer. Now, consequently, um, yeah, it's like a hot tub. Yeah, you know, exactly. Don't stay in too long. Exactly. Like I can watch it in chunks. Um, but but um, and I know that there's issues with the gentleman who's at the forefront of the creative end of this. But I really like a, a Prey Home Companion a lot. Um, uh, his the film Altman's final film. Yeah. Oh no, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's an amazing film, and I do feel that um, it's. I mean, because you'd also say this stuff for like Gosford Park and Mash. Mm-hmm. There are films of his that I am more uh, trended towards. Mm-hmm. But there's always an emotional core there, and there's a humanism mm-hmm. about him. And you mentioned Tati's humanism at the top of our Jour de Fed episode. Or, it's all throughout that episode. Exactly. Yeah. And there's humanistic behavior in that too, but this is like the raw form of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that should be noted about this, so uh, in the event with this series that we decide to do this, we may do a, a like a, we may have to go back at some point to examine both cuts of this movie side by side in detail. Um, but uh, Sterling, you watched the, director's vision of the movie essentially according to um what the edit was because you yeah, the backstory on that is that he we have the theatrical cut um, mm-hmm. another plug for criterion yes exactly uh, who is having their sale recently this month guys this month you yeah. can get 50 percent off guess what you guys you can get citizen kane in 4k guess what you can pick up the complete jacques tati box set for 34 dollars instead of the 80 that uh, zach just paid because he jumped the gun, but he did it for a good cause because we did have a schedule hey, to record hey, this episode. Hey, hey, Criterion, now that I gave you an extra $30, could you like, I don't know, put out book Benny Rads again on Criterion Blu-ray? <laughs> I'm going to just go out on a limb and say that Criterion should sponsor your show, Zach, and Ooh. you should probably get some kind of a, a scholarly promo code <laughs> and have a dialogue. Um, can the softies? Can the softies give me a handshake and a hug? <laughs> That would be great, I'm not going to lie, especially for filmmakers who make me anxious as all hell. I would love to know that they're kind people at heart. Um, um, so he uh, he has a theatrical cut. Yes. That is released, uh, what is it, 53? 53, yes, February 53. of 53. And then this, I don't know if this is all of his films or just Holiday. He re-released Playtime, but I have no idea what he did with it, or if but anything. It seemed that throughout throughout his life like um did it say into 97 um or, or was it 79 78 was 78. this uh release version but basically he keeps tinkering with this film and re-editing it to the point where he even like burns out some of the footage and they have to do re uh, prints yes on the negatives uh this was the one he just kept tooling with and trying to make perfect so i watched the uh, the final cut mm-hmm. that he did, which was then uh, restored for the Blu-ray. Yeah, which doesn't um, feature the uh, narration by Harrison Ford and doesn't feature the replicant <laughs> issue. Yeah, <laughs> um, and probably the first time I saw this, it was VHS, and I, I, Ooh. I'm assuming that like it, maybe it was the theatrical cut. You know, it's possible. So the, the more one, than a decade ago. So the one thing that I was going to bring up on that is that I love that Criterion put it on there, and it does mm-hmm. look good. It's not a restoration. From what I can tell, this is not a restoration on the original theatrical cut from 53. But the three times that he did this, he did it in 53. The final version was in 78. This, um, uh, The middle ground of that had a revision in 62 for a re-release as mm. well. Now, we will talk about some of these differences as we go along in the plot, but 
I do want to kind of talk about a, a couple of pieces of production history with this film because oh, I don't know, they were hard to find. Yes, so that's the thing. I really was expecting a commentary on this film, and I didn't get it. And I'm not, I'm not upset. Criterion, we're not upset. We're just disappointed. I'm not even disappointed. I was just I'm like, do we need to do that for them? <laughs> we just need we need access to the French film archives or something. Yeah, um, give us the files. Get get we we're gonna break into the Cinematheque and take Tati's stuff. <laughs> That's actually the the Mission Impossible Nine. Ooh, because he's gone to space now. They're like, what could you do? He's like, I will go to France. You know why? Because guess what? Nobody else is going to theaters except for film nerds anyway. <laughs> this is true. Tom Cruise is recognizing this and he's just like, I got to cater to them. Yeah. Um, and he's they're not going to give me an Oscar, but I can do this for him. <laughs> <laughs> he should have gotten one for fucking Magnolia. He's good in Magnolia. Um, <laughs> yeah, he'll be back. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, don't worry. He'll always be back. He never leaves. Um, now, the... Uh, the, as described by the theorist um, on uh, the Criterion uh, breakdown, which is a 40-minute breakdown, by the way. It's an insane breakdown. Um, he said that it was uh, Hulo was kind of inspired by a fellow soldier uh, whose nickname was Alouette. Um, as we talked about, Tati was in the armed services. Mm-hmm. Um, who uh, Alouette was peaceful, kind, and wholly deaf to his superiors' orders. So... This is a gentleman who kind of resembles Tati as we've been describing him. He's a very kind and gentle person, but he, <laughs> it's not that he doesn't respond to authority. He just kind of bumbles through it. <laughs> yeah, he's just aloof. Yes, and, um, exactly. We'll get into it again because it's like a major theme in the film and all his works, but um, he's j- there's a boyishness to him as well in his aloofness. He's not cruel. He's just clumsy. No, he's not cruel. He's got a very uh, personal moral compass. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's definitely clumsy. And yeah, there's just a childish sensibility to him or a childlike sensibility to him. Yes. Uh, kind of like a rose-colored idealism mm-hmm. to his character. And something that the theorist brought up that I found interesting, he used Laurel and Hardy as the primary example, but I'd argue, and and this series is also going to behoove me to go back to American silent comedy in full because I'm primarily a Chaplin watcher with a, with an occasional Keaton, but I need to go through everybody here. Um, especially Laurel and Hardy, cause that's been a long time coming. But, um, the theorist says that it's, um, uh, it plays down the utter destructiveness of something like a Hor- Laurel and Hardy film where everything is big and bombastic, the clumsiness and the, comic uh the the comic capers that ensue in this film are subtle things they're not big and bold with the exception of the climax of this movie (laughs) um which uh that one is bombastic but the majority of the gags in here are pretty low level Mm -hmm. um jordi fett has a lot of ambition and scope with the french countryside and that cycling this one's kind of subdued it's static there's not a lot of attempt for major movement. It's all about subtle things. It's things within... There's wide shots in this film because it's a Tati movie, and he'll use those to amplify sound effects where he wants to to create depth of field. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of like intimacy in this film in ways, yes. in, in ways that I think are its attributes rather than its detriments. Because, you, because we talked about reactive comedy uh, in the last episode. This is kind of debunking my my insistence that most comedy needs to be in a medium or a wide because mm-hmm. that intimacy allows for us to feel with Hulot as he's going through his stumbles and bumbles in life. Do you have a few examples that strike out? Um, 
I on think the top of your head? I think it's I I would consider this a close up, but not an e- extreme close up. Is when he first enters. When he first enters the hotel, and we see him fumbling with his pipe, with the pipe, yeah, yeah and saying his name, Hulo, Hulo, like we have to, we have to see his struggle up close. We can't see that from afar. You're not going to get the same effect of that with from afar, and especially since he technically has dialogue in that moment, you need that intimacy and you need that close up. That's our introduction to the character, um, yeah, as as named. Mm-hmm. There was one interesting parallel, and um. And we'll circle right back to what you're saying. Yeah. But I know in Joy de Fett, we had talked about um, how Francois, his introduction riding through the cows yes. on his bicycle is going to out, you know, sort of lay out his relationship with the town. Mm-hmm. Um, this movie starts, uh, there are a couple of great gags, but uh, like the introduction of Hulo mm-hmm. is he's in his little terrible uh, 1923 car. Mm-hmm. It's like a box car with bike wheels. And um, this more modern car comes uh zach just knocked over the necronomicon yes i know exactly so the 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 cabin's gonna be infected with monsters now i'm sorry guys but um as 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 we were saying um he's in this little car this modern car races around him Mm -hmm. uh, because even for the time this is shot in you know the early 50s and he's driving a car that's 30 years old at this point yeah and we're shot in 52 Mm um or so I'm to think if he's shot in the summer of 50 because it seems like that was what I was trying to figure out was the scope of how long this produ- film was in production because they were saying that he was shooting as far back as 1950 for this. So I don't know how that fully functions in the timeline. But yeah, I'm going to I'm going to have to um, remind me to ask you how long exactly the yeah. production of this was from from start to finish. Yeah. Because I didn't, I didn't find that. That's the thing. Oh, I thought maybe you had, the, had that, that in your Bible. No, but I will tell you that they were talking when they're talking about refilming stuff. They mention 1950 as a year mm. in which he's filming stuff. Now that theorist could have gotten it wrong, but long story short, this is the early 50s. This is a time when pulling off some of those stunts isn't particularly easy if you're not having a Hollywood budget. Right, you, you certainly don't have a monitor on set that you're watching. Mm-hmm. You know, you're screening dailies. Oh, we didn't get it. That's why the Chaplin films, like historically, takes so long to shoot. Yeah, and also he had the benefit of not having to technically have a deadline. Chaplin, Chaplin did not. Yeah. The con- the benefit of his contract with you, uh, any distributor that was handling his films, was that they were telling him take all the time. First National was the company. Yeah. They said take all the time you need. You can do it whenever you want and put it out whenever you want. We just want Chaplin's films. That's a that's a luxury that only Chaplin really got. Really? Yeah. yeah. I mean, arguably Tati kind of does that, but not with the same luxury. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, it seems like he's kind of, um, especially towards the end, like when he loses that prestige. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so this car weaves around his car. Yeah. There's a, and then we see Hulo driving through the countryside and then there's this dog in the middle of the road. Yes. And this dog is just like sleeping on the hot asphalt. And it has moved for the modern car. It hears it coming. It gets up. It kind of expects that sort of speed and it gets up accordingly. Yeah. Gets out of the way, comes and lays back in the road. And then Hulo comes in, uh, in this little 1923, uh, box car mm-hmm. that has a horn that sounds like a duck, um, outside the door. He has to reach out and honk it. And he's trying to get the dog out of the road mm-hmm. and the dog is paying him no mind. And then the dog is like wagging its tail. Like it knows he's there, but it, it isn't really in a hurry to get out of its way. It eventually gets up. And then instead of getting um, out of the way of the car, it walks up to the car and then 
to the door where his hand is out honking the horn. Mm-hmm. And then to speak to Hulot's um, kindness, the introduction to the character is, you know, he's sort of soft-spoken. Yeah. And then he pets a dog, pats this dog on the head, and then and then continues on his journey. Yeah. Um, so it, it was interesting, just an interesting parallel between Jour de Fête yeah. and Holiday yeah. um, to see both characters in commute or like in transit being yeah. introduced. And what's more, it's not the only comparison we can draw. Um, something that was pointed to this, which it kind of already felt intuitive when watching the theatrical cut, because I did the theatrical cut first, um, which I will tell you right up front, Sterling, if you haven't seen that cut yet, you're in for a different experience because Hulo has more dialogue. The audience, uh, the listeners can't see this, but my, my hat just flew off my head and yeah. stuck to the ceiling. <laughs> How'd you do that? <laughs> uh, it's in the ears. But... Oh, well, now you've got magic ears. I can't do that with my ears. Anyhow. Um... I'm only good for putting earbuds into them and listening to too many podcasts. Um, no, it, 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 because he has more dialogue and because there is more dialogue surrounding the piece, mm-hmm. there are differences in the final cut that actually benefit. Mm. There are also parts of it that uh, I don't, particularly love by a compare and contrast okay but one thing in, is for certain in this is that no matter what you experience with monsieur hulot much like George de fet we see a town being uh expecting a gathering and a crowd of people we start off this film with that opening shot with the peaceful seaside mixed with that score mm-hmm. and then we are kicked right kicked. into the hustle and bustle of society and post-war France. We. 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 <laughs> See. Um, you um, you get the soundscape, which is intentionally ambiguous. It's un- it's it's made it's made unclear for re- for a reason. We're talking about the speaker? Yeah, the, the speaker, speaker. Yeah, the... It's a great gag. Which I have the actual translation from it. I did find this. It's a train leaving on track five for Anaheim, Azusa, and Cucamonga. <laughs> uh, no, that, that was a dumb joke. Um, but what isn't dumb, though, is that we see the town... With everybody descending upon the town mm-hmm. and then packing up and leaving, much like George Fett. Yes, and that's so. It's a, interesting. Yeah, interesting parallel. The theorist um, on the Criterion alluded it, alluded to it as the the world resetting itself, mm-hmm. and I like that idea of like a renewal. <laughs> like it's like it's like the uh, the uh, societal equivalent of the phoenix rising from the ashes uh, like after it's been burned down in the forest to begin new life and whatnot yeah well de Fet, uh, literally takes place during a springtime mm-hmm like a yeah and so it's a, a celebration of the end of winter yeah it's their midsummer maybe like it, it, <laughs> that scene where uh francois is dressed in all the flowers and oh he's yeah crying at oh, the end oh they, yeah and when burn renoir <laughs> and when martine is dressed in a bear suit oh man <laughs> and then um, hulot's just smiling really terrifyingly but you feel satisfaction because he's been hurt and heartbroken <laughs> yeah i'm glad you <laughs> Hulo and Midsummer. <laughs> um, remember last episode we were talking about how Bezos needs to spend his money. Yes, uh, he's shooting to resurrect <laughs> for our for our amusement. Yeah, resurrecting. We need Jacques Tati and Ari Aster to make a team up movie that will just knock everybody outside of the park. The Oscars are going to Tati and Aster this year. He's finally getting yeah what he deserved. Well, I mean, he did 
he did get one eventually. We'll talk about it in the next episode. But he did get his first nomination for this. He movie. gets the um. Did he get the Palm d'Or for this one? Um, really quickly. Oop, I have it. I just he won the. He was nominated for the Palm d'Or. Okay, so he got the nomination. He did win the Louis Deluc Prize for Best Film. And he was eighth place at the National Board of Review Awards, which, again, as I've said before, I don't know what the National Board of Review does to decide its things. It just decides things. It's a board. It reviews uh, <laughs> nationally. Um, yeah. Should we get into the, the film? Yes, we should. Um, one quick note that I will make about um, we talked about the location real quick. Um, I did. What, it was a St. Mark. St. Mark. Sur Mer. In St. Nazaré. Uh, he chose the location because they felt it had a plain universal quality of post-war beach resorts around around France. Mm-hmm. Now, something we talked about in Jour de Fête was post-war, the post-war feeling of this. Yeah, that, that's a big theme throughout Jour de Fête, definitely. And this one in particular in the theatrical cut has a lot of it. In the version where he cut it down, he pulls back on that. Not by much, but he pulls back on it. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of that post-war feeling or establishment comes in the form of radio uh, sounds coming in from the radio of like people speaking over the radio, of like an address from the minister. Oh yes. Um, people talking about the stock exchange and whatnot. Yes. But there is this there is this desire to find normalcy mm-hmm. in a post-war world, um, and I do feel like something about Tati as he revised it is that he almost wanted to kind of like downplay that immediacy in the aftermath, which I don't know if that's his intent, but it feels like it was something that he took into account because if you're trying to make a movie as a universal thing, theoretically you don't want to date it. And maybe not to an American audience, but to a French audience, it might date it. Um, And he made his reputation really burgeons in France before it even comes to our shores. Like it's because obviously that's his home country. Right. But like if our country's barely witnessing Tati beyond certain borders, France is going to pick up on things faster, obviously. And he re-released his films in France quite a bit. Um, but we should jump into the plot, as you said, uh, real quick. Yeah, sure. On that note, um, like you were saying, it's interesting that his instinct as a filmmaker, as he went on and re-edited this film was to make it, um, to remove it from the immediacy of the time where it took place. Yeah. And also to take out some of the specific dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, I think as we go on through his uh, catalog of work, we'll see that tendency kind of broadening mm-hmm. um, in his initial cuts. But it's interesting that when he goes back and retools this, he, he, he's taking a lot of that out. And I think if you're coming, you know, if you're, if you're of a time, mm-hmm your your instinct is going to be especially as a newer filmmaker um to date the film a bit kind of like in america for the last 40 years you know every year we have a movie that takes place 20 years before the movie we're kind of obsessed with that yeah that vintage um stock that quality um it's, it's the 70s then the 80s and then the 90s yeah and now like we're, we're supposed to be in the 90s period right now technically yeah i mean we're even moving into the aughts just because like of the acceleration of the universe expanding and oh, everything movies are going to start looking like dude where's my car aren't they hey. yeah i'm actually um oh 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 is there a big scoop <laughs> um i'm not going to announce it now but uh, i am in talks for a dude where's my car uh remake it's going to be a tv show Oh, and uh, yeah, every episode they're going to lose their car <laughs> and then there's a greater car um, that they're also trying to find along the way. Uh. Um, 
So it's not about the car, but it's about the friends they make along the way. Is that the thing? Mm-hmm. Okay, wonderful. We're setting up like a the multiverse. Oh, nice. Uh, the the, the car. Dude was my car. That includes American Pie. And, and White Castle. <laughs> oh, my God. That's when things get really yeah. insane. Because they also have 3D Christmases there. Yeah, America's not ready for this. <laughs> um, but yes, no. We um, digress. But, but it is interesting that that's his instinct. Yeah, and I I, I do wonder, like, do... do from a historical standpoint, I guess it technically bothers me. And from a revisionist standpoint, we might as well get the revisionist talk out of the way right now. Let's do it. I want to be clear to an audience listening to this, trying to learn. There's a, I feel like there's a difference between what Tati does and what George Lucas did. (laughs) Yes. Because feasibly Tati didn't lose the negative or forever alter the negative or forever alter the initial prints of uh monsieur monsieur holo's holiday what he did was narrow down his version of it but when you still have a version of it available for mass consumption by a company like criterion that's what the difference is between what lucas did with star wars and with this because i feel like that's the if if the goal of ybr is always to draw a comparison to the present mm-hmm. Realtering your cuts isn't a new phenomenon. We we talked we joked about the Blade Runner thing. There's five different cuts of that movie. Uh, Ridley Scott does an extended cut of his films all the time. Rarely do you see a filmmaker actually scaling back his time mm-hmm. on a film. So I do wonder like how you personally feel about him scaling back on that uh, those elements that do date it. Like, does it change your experience in any way, shape, or form? It doesn't really for me, but... For me, no. I guess going in, I know what time it takes place in. I have a certain... Um, but even if I was coming into it cold, uh, you know, immediate post-war France, um, this far back in history... Yeah. I I know it takes place within a five-year kind of delta, and and I'm not disturbed wondering if it's 50 or if it's 55. Mm-hmm. Um, especially because the movie, you know primarily like has no concern the cut that I saw with what time it like takes place. Yeah. It's, it's a vague period of time. It, it really is an anti-plot film. Oh yeah. In a lot of ways. And, and you know that the, the time period doesn't really matter. Like, you know that it's vintage, you know, if it's, it's of an era and that's it. And, um, it speaks to, you know, he's doing this as he's aging. I have a friend, um, I have several friends who are drummers, but I have one friend in particular who's a very talented drummer and is now, in his late fifties. Um, and he's been playing drums since he was 14 or nine or something. And I remember early on in our friendship, we were talking about percussion and drums and, and things on different tracks. Um, and he had this point about how a younger drummer will really, uh, create flourishes and fills and like really work to fill every moment of time, every measure of time Hmm. with a sound. And then as that drummer ages, the tendency is usually to lay back a bit more and yeah. just kind of play the beat and then add the fills and the flourishes. Which I, I appreciate that analogy because that that seems to me to be an element of Tati that I appreciate because the the final vision that we see to me is not uh it doesn't it's it there's 12 minutes it's 12 minutes removed or, or, or removed from the film, three key scenes are removed. One scene is added, mm. um, and shot shots are shortened and scaled back or taken out completely. Um, but the one thing that I got out of it was like the only thing it really does is 
double down on what Tati wants out of a movie, which is primarily silence, minimal dialogue, clear sound, because he remixed the score mm. for this one um, in, in the re-releases. So he redid it. like the, He did a clean track of it. So you'll notice, and for anybody listening at home and for Sterling, when you watch the two different cuts, the soundtrack sounds different, but also the beat of the music and the way it's being performed sounds different. Oh, fascinating. It's just, it's, and part of it's because of the quality of the soundtrack, but another part of it is that you can kind of tell that it's a little bit cleaner and mm-hmm. a little bit less sporadic. Um, now, uh, but I will also say that there's something about Tati never finished with a product. He did say that a film for him is never really complete. Um, and he never felt that it, th- there was always something you could do further with it. And it's kind of like an, a, 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 in ways it kind of connects to the way Orson Welles felt about what does it feel like to film, finish a project? And he says like terrible, because then that means I can't work on it anymore and it's done. Like, which which also has been said to be a reason why Orson Welles never finished anything is because he was too uh, he was too in love with the process of it or you know the money thing is one thing but another thing is that there's a there's theories that Orson just never wanted to finish a movie so yeah any filmmaker can can speak to that sort of like um, I know I'm kind of feeling it on the short film that I've that I just finished up like I just sent it off for uh, to do sound cleanup before we do anything final with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I got to tell you, like, I'm always looking at it going, like, maybe there's more I can do. But, like, at a certain point, I have to stop. I'm a perfectionist in writing. There's a reason I have so many scripts and so few completed films. Yeah. And that's, like, I can always uh, revise a draft. Yeah. And um, the difference, though, is, is that there other people do need to push me at times to look at it further. But then once I start looking, that's when I'm like, oh, my God, there's more I can do. <laughs> like, but there really is an emptiness and a depression, I think, that sinks in for me. Um, since yeah. I'm mostly working above the line or AD. Like, I'm the one who's uh, inbox is blowing up and i'm i'm constantly on the phone yeah uh throughout pre-production until we finish right and then sometimes into post but uh like that moment where you wrap a film and you're (laughs) just holding your phone in your hand or like checking your emails like a zombie uh, and you sort of have this shell shock um you're just like what's next that's why i keep doing podcasting certainly because then because then when that's finished i'm just like well it's fine i've got a podcast to do tomorrow i don't get a break (laughs) yeah i imagine that you you've figured out a way where you put half your brain to sleep while you're talking and mm-hmm. you just alternate lobes. Yeah. That's why you have two different podcasts. Yeah. No, yeah. I don't imagine you sleep. There's, oh, well, I sleep about a minimum of four hours a night. <laughs> I sleep when I exhale. Yeah, exactly. That's, <laughs> that's the goal going forward. With that, though, maybe we do deserve a vacation. Hey, I tell you <gasps> what, why don't we go to a beach town? Why don't we go to a beach town and, and, and off the coast of France? I think nothing's going to interfere with our rigid schedule <laughs> of a vacation. Um, we talked about the opening a little bit, but yes, we got that opening with the seaside and it kicks into society right off the bat. We're dealing with Tati's criticisms of a new emerging world that has sort of a bureaucratic notion about it or a rigid uh, attachment to order. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I can't ever tell if he's, uh, still if he's against it or kind of just like observing it and letting us decide. Um, I think it's the latter. Mm. I think a lot of his filmmaking, I think he does have a point of view, but I think as he makes the film, he's not um, like didactic in describing his point of view. Yeah. Um, I think he does like, he wants you, he wants you to answer the question he's asking, which he brings that up a lot when it comes to sound and also how gags, play in his films the gags are like questions and then you as the audience answer them 
and so like yeah that's in the Xi'an documentary it was one of my favorite uh lines yeah i think i wrote that down i'm sure it's in your bible as well but he says that um, a summation of it is but yes it is very much like you know the sounds are a question the sound asks a question which the viewer must answer within the image the mm-hmm. sounds are specific and they're matched to an action and we as the viewer must locate that action exactly um so yeah i think as much as he wants you to not be a passive observer uh, he also doesn't want to tell you how to think. He, he wants yeah. to let you kind of figure out his film for itself. Yeah, and at the same time, those sounds are also doing a wonderful job of realistically, like he says it's not there to amplify the comedy, but with all due respect to Mr. Tati, um, who is not with us, obviously, unless the ghost decides to show up, um, uh, I think that, even though it's not there to amplify the comedy, it does do that. I think it does naturally by what sound effects and comedy can do. I think it's natural, especially when it comes to comedy in particular, that sound drives comedy better than most other genres, apart from horror, maybe. Um, Mm. I use radio comedy as a good example of that. Um, Sound effects in radio can amplify a comedy to a loving degree, especially when it comes to timing and silence. And much like Masters of Timing in that medium, Tati with film uses sound effects sparingly and specifically. The Xi'an documentary also talked about we'll have a wide angle shot. In this case, we have a wide angle shot on the train station, Mm -hmm. but the most amplified sound isn't the hustling and bustling. It's that train announcer or it's specific sounds like the light faint sound of a train and then the the woman smacking her child. Like that's a specific sound that yeah, you hear. That's a sound in close up. Yes. Like an hour roll of close up. Yep. Which again is another example of like the comedy works in close up. I mean, there's nothing funny about a woman smacking her kid, but um, <laughs> I mean No comment. No no comment. <laughs> I laughed out loud. Yes. <laughs> I guess when you're looking objectively of like a parent trying to get their kid ready to do something and they're not behaving, but it's, it's like French, it's French slapstick It's such too. a cold, um, it's that cold style of parenting that like mm-hmm. doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, cause there's nothing funny about like passionate child abuse, but there is something funny about our grandparents world where like a kid will just get just slapped across the face. Have you you've seen the Public Enemy, right? Uh, with James Cagney. Yes. Remember when uh, young Tom goes down and just immediately pulls down his pants because he already knows that his dad's gonna hit him with the belt, and he's just like, "How do you want him this time, up or down?" <laughs> <laughs> um, there is something funny about like the idea of just like already knowing the routine of this generation. It's the cold brutality. And and here you do get it, and in a sense that the, even if you don't have the time capsule of post-war France, mm-hmm. you do have a time capsule of a period of what stuff was acceptable and that was perceived to be always acceptable. Um, and also within the train, we also are introduced to Mart- uh, Martine. Um, uh, Martine, by the she way, like, is played yeah. by Natalie Pascal. Natalie Pascal. It's her first film. Yeah, and I didn't find much info on her. But. She was in four films, like from this film to I think 64 was the last one. Mm. She was a model. She changed her name at some point to Natalie Pascal. And um, that's about it, really. I mean, she's she's stunning. Yeah. And she has a presence. Yeah. And um, so much so that one of those dads just keeps looking at her as she's walking into the into the ocean. I love that character. There, John. Like, John. 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 Yeah. So much of the dialogue in this film is scolding. Uh, yeah. Either either mothers calling after children or wives calling after their husbands. Mm-hmm. 
um, so much of it or um, like the proprietor or the waiter sort of calling out a scold in terms of just uh, how one acts or verbally shaking their fist at Hulo. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. And then also the man who's always getting like, excuse me, I'm getting a phone call. Yes, exactly. Um, oh yeah. Cause he, remember when I said that these guys don't know how to have a vacation. <laughs> It's, um, yeah, or, they really don't. It's Hulo. It's the kids. It's Martine. Yeah, these the, the and a lot of the the angles on this film in particular are interesting from two perspectives. Because one, Tati is not explicitly drawing off of his own personal life. However, his memories as a child of what it seemed like mm-hmm. perpetrate the movie. And then the story itself unfolds in a way that's not necessarily specific to Tati's experience. So it's like dabs of his personal life and in, in, invoked in there and it's mainly through the kids whether it's them, Denny Denny yes the other nameless children yeah playing in the sand needlessly grabbing ice cream cones I, that is an adorable shot of the kid grabbing the two ice cream oh, cones. we're gonna do a whole close-up on that because that yeah. that to me is the entire film or at least like his entire uh worldview Mm. And when we get to that gag, uh, I can go deeper into that. Right. But. And we're, and they're arriving on the train, by the way. We also get the perspective of children looking out the window. Often. Arriving on vacation. Mm-hmm. And remember how I talked about the Spielberg thing in the last episode about, like, I wouldn't be surprised if Spielberg watched George yes. Fett and took notes? Yes. I'm doubling down on this. I think Spielberg's a Tati fan because those shots seem so Spielbergian. <laughs> Spielbergian. Um, that's my new. That'll be the series I do if I ever cover the new wave. Yeah, um, or, or Spielberg uh, has a bit of a Tatesque viewpoint. Yes, in that he's always grounding his film or centering his film around like a ten-year-old yeah. boy. And there's always that like, there's that gaze. Mm-hmm. There's that gaze that he has that I think Tati captures, but not to. He doesn't hold on it. Spielberg does. Yeah. Spielberg uses that for a, like a money shot. Spielberg's a much more sentimental filmmaker than Tati. Yes. Even though I will say that I I will always, uh, we're not going to go on this tangent necessarily, but I will say that I find Spielberg is not as sentimental as other people seem to think he is. I think it's, I think he is sentimental, but there are times when he's not. And I think it's good to identify when he is and when he isn't. <laughs> um, yes. Because think, you, you can see it. <laughs> I think you're not wrong. I do think that, uh, you know, art, kind of lives and dies in the eye of the beholder and exactly if if everyone's experiences sentimentality through spielberg then like he kind of becomes a sentimental filmmaker uh but yeah that's another podcast but his restraint yeah. uh his restraint does that but like the but the whole point of this being from a child's perspective is that we ideal get, we get the child's perspective both through the windows and then we get the reverse shot um one of the first gags tati's moving along in his car and then he gets to a bus and there's a moment where you think he's going to park and get on the bus. But mm-hmm. really, he just pulls up, sees the crowded bus that's also on its way somewhere, perhaps not to the seaside. Yeah. Um, and then we get the shot inside the bus. Uh, we get a couple shots of the crowded bus, different cutaways. And then we get, again, it's like an OTS close-up, but it's a beautiful gag. It's just the bus driver looking down and then we get this tilt and this child's head, this like four-year-old kid is sitting on his knee and his head is through the steering wheel preventing him from driving I, 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 and the kid's just looking up and blinking at him yeah like dead-eyed yeah like, uh, like i don't know this i thought this was a seat is this not correct and the bus driver i i wrote imaginary scenarios for many of these characters in my head but the one that stuck out to me the most was this bus driver going again <laughs> god damn it this is the 15th time we've done this <laughs> did you notice that that was tati no in I didn't. cameo no Oh my God! So he not only did that, but he played the bus driver. He plays as well. the bus driver. Oh, wow! Dang, 
putting yourself all over the place like Walt Flanagan and Clerks. <laughs> um, should we really? I think the the plot of the film is simply uh, Monsieur Hulot goes on vacation. Yeah, it's the could, title of the film is the plot. Yes, he goes on vacation. There are um, other people there who are also on vacation. And yet Hulo is not really the main character technically because everybody's got their own moments, which is interesting. Hulo, um, kind of the film follows him or he's always like on the periphery. Like you said, he's kind of, he's the invisible observer or the invisible agent of chaos. But yeah. really, um, yeah, he comes in to disrupt yeah, and I don't think we need to go like beat for beat for beat, but there are gags to talk about. Um, one thing I do want to bring up from since we're near the beginning of the film, though, mm-hmm. since we're already here, the ensemble, the ensemble um, is well. The one thing I wanted to point out is actually the sound effects of the car, because that program for French television did something amazing for first-time filmmakers to observe. How is that s- when they were observing it silently and then with mm-hmm. the soundtrack? Yeah. So for the audience who's um, uh, who just heard that and is wondering, what's that? What's that? Well, I'm going to tell you. Um, yeah, this is film school. This, yeah, this is film school here. Welcome to Zach's film school. Um, you get no degree. You just get a pat on the back and a cookie. Now, um, Tati uses the, sound, the car sound effects from Mr. Hulot's Holiday to explain the importance of sound. And first, first by the way, he's, in, he's a little bit like... Uh, uh, in disbelief when the woman asks him that and then the interview he kind of looks and he goes like were you not watching the footage <laughs> like, huh all right fine i'm gonna show you so he shows the, the the scene silent and then he shows it with the sound effects that car in silent doesn't convey jalopy and junk even though it looks rustic it could still drive well you know yes. that's why that's why people remake vintage cars but the he says in the in the quote it's not comic effect it's how sound contributes to reflecting the car's personality. So without those sound effects and without the exaggeration of them, we don't know it's a jalopy. Mm-hmm. The radio equivalent of this is honestly Jack Benny's program because he has a 1920 Maxwell, which is a hunk of junk. And the sound effect is just Mel Blanc making jalopy sounds. But because of those sound effects with the idea of a Maxwell car, we know that that car's a hunk of junk. It's the same with this on a visual level. Those sound effects are the only reason we know that this Salmon modified Salmon car is a piece of junk. And what's more, because of Tati's height, he's crouched in there, kind of like in The Simpsons with the yeah. really sh- tall guy in this the short This is car. the largest car I could afford. <laughs> <laughs> are you laughing at the me of the size of the size of me and my automobile? <laughs> um, um, yeah, and it's similar also to the bell on the bicycle in Jour de Fête. Um, but he takes an object and he gives it a personality yeah. with the sound. Um, and when, when you watch it back to back, it re- like it, it really is fascinating. Yeah. Again, just kind of quick beta on filmmaking. If you, you want to learn anything about film, watch a film silently. Uh, my wife thinks I'm insane. Sometimes she'll walk in and I'm just watching a movie on mute. Well, here's a, um, here, here's audio proof that you're not crazy. Um, Sterling's wife, Sterling's not crazy. Because this is what you're. This is what you should do. Now go back and listen to this podcast without sound as well, <laughs> uh, to really learn how to be a podcast. It's just me doing shadow puppets on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, to your greater point, um, yeah. I think, and that was that was in the f- the French uh, documentary, not the Shion. No, but the um the the other one, yeah, mm. and um. One other thing that he brings up within the soundscape before we can just talk about our favorite gags, because this is kind of like 
it's not that this film is gag driven or, and we can also talk about moments that we love in this film, but um, he talked about depth of field with sound. Yeah. We um, talked about that a bit off mic. Yeah. Um, before we got started, just cause I think we were reacting to the film. Cause it's in that same television program where he shows Martine mm-hmm. opening up the window door mm-hmm. and then the beach opens up. And I have this here is that he opens up the, he's opening up the door to the window and we are thrust into the sounds of vacation soundscape, which is key. And basically he's, he says that if you can, if you can essentially, I got it right here. Sorry. Um, about to open the window goes to open the window depth of field by raising the sounds beneath uh, of the beach up automatically obtain a depth of field because background sounds are louder than the foreground you're establishing space depth of field is a concept that's not limited to visual and this was like a this was a today revelation for me this made a whole other bunch of films of in my library much more tempting to re-examine because of listening to the sound design and how it establishes space when what we perceive is something that is low budget or less ambitious, they might be using sound to achieve a soundscape or to to achieve a depth of field in that process. Or consequently, how you can tell that it's supposed to be a big crowd scene, but there's not a lot of people in there, but the background sounds will indicate space. What's funny about that too, um, and he speaks to this also, um, I think this is in the Shion bit as well, but the way that it's not a like wall to wall cacophony. Yeah, no, um, it's specific. When you watch it now, your instinct, just because you've watched so much modern cinema and modern cinema, um, and, and this is something I'm guilty of as a sound engineer, um, it's just kind of how things are done. You, you add room tone and then you add atmosphere, um, and you really like leave no moments of silence. Mm-hmm. And the, also the idea is that the sound, um, much like invisible editing, the sound is meant to complement the image and stay with the image. So if we're in a close up, the sound is close up. And if we're in, like I remember early on um, doing a project and the criticism was, you know, you're in a wide shot and the match is too loud when mm-hmm. the person's lighting a match. Yeah. Um, that's not naturalistic. Yeah. That's not a realistic way that the sound would play out. And that was a mistake I made on accident, but um, that's something Tati's doing again and again in this film on purpose. and later in his work on purpose, he's saying that, um, you know, you have depth of field of the focus of the camera. And then also if you can have moments where you amplify the background sounds, like mm. now you have a, an hour old depth of field. Yeah. And he does that in spades in this movie because of a couple of key factors for me. One of them, like which these beach scenes are incredible. Like he makes use of this location gloriously. Like it's, it's 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 like stepping into a comfortable postcard, which obviously is a reference that'll come back up later here in a little bit. But yeah, it reminded me so much of um, Northern California, like up near the redwoods, some of those smaller beaches. It kind of also reminded me. This will sound strange, but uh, North the uh, uh, beaches on the East Coast a little bit have this vibe to them. To do we agree? I went to a beach in North Carolina when I was a kid. That kind of had this same kind of vibe to it. Like, still sleepy beach. Yeah, and there's dark rocks around. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like quite bright. It's not like right. going to like a SoCal beach and whatnot, where it's a little bit more brighter. Yeah. But, um, and there's something about he uses children uh, 
screaming on a loop, not screaming, um, saying things. And there's phrases that are repeated, like uh, there are certain phrases that are repeated constantly to achieve the idea of because they're in a vacation, they're stuck in a loop of routine. And I was fascinated by the way that this film deals with rigid order and routine and how Hulo, as much as he is a kind of like floating through aloofly he's a whirlwind yeah he's he's like a tornado that's coming through this that's establishing shot within the town at the same time he is also realistically the the one person who's literally having a holiday and so him and the children yeah and and martine and and the candyman the shot that exemplifies that for me in particular is that when they have the masquerade dance Mm -hmm. which which we Mm -hmm. see tati as a pirate and i i want tati pirate movies (laughs) that would be Amazing. <laughs> yeah, Tati, Errol Flynn. Yeah, exactly. Doesn't need to speak to Olivia de Havilland. Olivia de Havilland just wants him anyway. <laughs> um, and probably less because problematic he's the than Errol Flynn. That's fun. Yes, he is. Yes, thank you. When when you see the emptiness of that masquerade dance hall with all the chairs, like when we were kids and you'd have the school dance and everybody'd sit in chairs and go like, I don't want to dance. This is all freaking awkward and creepy. Yeah, that was me until my mid twenties. Yeah, that's me now. Now, <laughs> um. The uh, when you have the um, when you have that empty space when it's just the kids and Martine, and then Hulo comes in. So Martine comes in. Yeah, there's supposed to be a party. I don't know if in the theatrical version this is played up more in the uh, in the cut that I watched. Not really. Yeah. It basically, the party is a woman's walking around and she's just putting silly hats on everyone. This is like night three, kind of the climactic night of the vacation. Yeah, she's decorating everyone with these silly hats, and they're like acknowledging that she's put a hat on them and then they're going back to whatever they were doing the night before and the night before that, which even, um, even then never really seemed like vacation. It was like some playing bridge or like some listening to the news or some reading marks or something. Still, still checking on stock reports, reports. still getting phone calls about from New York. Yeah. It's uh, everyone kind of bringing their, their stress and bringing their life to the seaside Mm -hmm. so that when we get to night three and there's this masquerade ball, um, it's it's really just symbolic. Martine comes in very excited. She's in an awesome costume. Yeah, it's it's not like quite like an Edith head gown, but it it's it's pulling something off. Yeah, it's a it's like this head turning little gown. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a kid also who's clearly dressed for a party that isn't happening. Yeah, she walks in. She surveys the room. She looks in at everybody. She gets kind of dejected, and then she heads for the door. And then yeah, right before she can step outside. Hulo dressed as a pirate mm-hmm. cues up a record and and the sound stops her. Yeah. And she turns around and he really saves the day. Like yeah. he's the only one that wants to party on her level, the only one that wants to be on vacation. Mm-hmm. The only one on holiday. Yeah. <laughs> hey. And then they dance around the room. And, and the the image, the shot is from perceivably the front entrance to that little dance hall. Mm. Of them dancing in the foreground and in the background, you see all of the people who are on vacation, quote unquote. Yes. Um, it's honestly the equivalent of what Clark Griswold wanted out of his vacation. It's not what he got, <laughs> obviously, for four movies. But um, but the, you see them getting, 
I don't say that. Unlike other times in the film, they are not like, rum for rum, how dare they? They are kind of like just observing it and looking puzzled at it. They're puzzled, and I think they're also a little jealous and a little... Um not sad, but there there's something in that moment where there there's a confusion. Like Hulo's the bumbling uh childlike idiot chaos bugs bunny character. But he's also in an, an innocent. And he gets the girl for this one night, you know. There's this like Cinderella moment where mm-hmm. just by being himself and being at ease and being relaxed, he gets the girl and like everyone who has been either side eyeing or oogling the girl, uh, or like trying to read philosophy to her everyone has been trying to impress martine the oh, entire that, movie that guy with philosophy i love that guy that he it's not that's not the only gal he's done that did that right. to in the movie but he's talking about progressive politics and i was just and part of me was trying to think of like i wasn't trying to think too much about what today's world is what was but i was just like I mean, I believe in everything he's saying, but I just don't think this is a this is a great way to be talking to women. No, he's the guy in the meme that's standing in the corner going, "Like they don't know that I read all these books." Yeah. <laughs> like, like that meme is is that, this character, this film, and that scene. He like turns and he looks, and but no one can believe that Tati is the one that gets to dance with Martine that night, um, even though no one else could be bothered. Yeah, and. Um, I think that also speaks to the melancholy of the film. As much as Tati is like not accepted and that's kind of the punctuation that we end on. Yeah. He's not accepted by society. It's it's to society's detriment that they don't accept Hulo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because um, they, it's their loss. And they have like I don't want to say it's elitism necessarily or classism, but there is a perceived superiority that they have they have established an order and i do think societal norms you know and i do think that the post-war mentality definitely contributes to this and yeah, i have this uh, seafood jello salad and if you're not making it right then the robinsons are beating you at being a suburban family thank you for saying that portion of it because that to me is exemplar of something that wasn't just american based we think of the 50s from a postcard perspective as this bastion of white suburbia. Mm. And in reality, it's much more convoluted and complicated than that, not just with the political atmosphere, but the social atmosphere, the horrendous racism abound in the country, the horrible anti-communist sentiments running through the country. And this order and this establishment is no different in France either. A lot of it, I do feel, is about Tati observing the expectations in a post-war world where people are trying to find normalcy again. Mm-hmm. Because a key thing in this film, we can talk about one of the, since we're kind of hip-hopping around the plot here, which I think is good for this movie because it doesn't have a through line in the cut that we both watched. Arguably, though, in the theatrical cut it does, but I'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, like, And I'll br- be brief on it because it doesn't, it's not like Game of Thrones levels. Mm-hmm. But when we get to the fireworks scene, which, by the way, what a climax! Talk about bombastic for a guy who's been subtle for the first hour and ten minutes, or hour and forty minutes of this movie, depending it's like on the which bike race you watch. in Jordan Fett. Yeah, it is, um, and you done just... in less time. And you do notice that one of the fireworks he carries out is a bicycle one. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So he's get a little bit of an homage to Jordan Fett in there. Um, but, um, cause one of the things he said was like, I don't want to do Francois. No, I don't want to repeat a character. No, but that was a, an equation that worked 
so well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just like you sit in the pocket and then you get your moment. Again, the drummer analogy, like this is your solo. Yeah, exactly. And the jazz score comes up. It's like jazz and fireworks. It's <laughs> fucking marvelous. And that actually exemplifies in the music that's used in this film too, because there's a very much a jazz infused score in here. And there's actually even talk of jazz in this film with mm-hmm. the, uh, the, <laughs> The sweater vested gentlemen and polo wearing gentlemen who are trying to impress Martine are going like, "You want to come over to my place? I've got an astounding Billy Billy uh, Billy Holiday record." Uh, yeah. And then the other one goes like, "I'm I prefer Duke." And the other one goes, "I what about Fats?" Yeah. And I'm like, "It it's kind of like listening to hipsters talk." <laughs> right, it's like hip hipster kind of prep, like yeah. Um, the, and and these are their grandfather's stories. <laughs> These are our grandfathers. Oh my you know? god! Like, oh my god! I, I think about my grandfather with a Van Dyke, like smoking a pipe, and oh, my grandfather uh, was a buzz cut boy. Oh, mm-hmm. my grandfather was like a a veteran hep cat. Like, oh, came out of the Pacific and decided he was going full bohemian. Yeah, it's um, um if you've seen a serious man, right? You know the um great movie. Yeah, you know the the neighbors that they have that are uh like <laughs> anti semitic. The yeah. haircuts that they have is very similar oh, to what yeah. my dad and my grandfather had. <laughs> like, I know. I mean, oh. it's a hot do, but um, but it's but but you're right that that mentality is there, and that like it shows honestly that talk of pop culture and like infusing it into our films has always been a sign of something to do in a film, and I don't think it particularly dates it, especially with the with the uh, figures they mentioned. By yeah, I still fuck with fats. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Welcome to Fuck with Fats with Sterling Cook. Everybody do it like Eastman does. (laughs) Um, (laughs) What's funny too and kind of ambiguous about the thing I'm going to hold for laughter. Yeah. And we're back. Yeah. Um, What's funny about that is, you know, even within Martine, there's a, um, there's like a dichotomy there where Mm -hmm. she's, she's both like eager to interact with everyone Mm-hmm. And then when she gets bored of them, she's done with them. Yeah. She, um, she, like she excuses herself from the dinner table so she can go talk jazz records with the preps. Do you think she's actively trying to find something of interest and, but trying to, I, it's, it's almost just like she wants to just kind of free float the way Hulo does. She envies Hulo to a degree. Well, I mean, she admires Hulo, mm-hmm. you know, like they're not, um, it's funny because the American version, like this movie gets remade and the American version is going to be... Um, there's a love story. There's a love story. especially mm-hmm. In the 90s, it would be like he's in his 60s and she's 22 and that'd be fine. And then now because we're progressive, like he'll be in his late 40s and she's in her early 30s. Yeah. Um, um, but like the movie is about, you know, these two strangers who kind of are oddballs and they they float through this world and then what makes this movie different is uh, in the American version, uh, they finally come together at the masquerade ball yeah, and then they're inseparable. And then even if they separate at the end of the film, they probably don't, they probably leave together in his little car yeah, or on horseback or something. Unless there's your link letter directs it. And then we're dealing with a trilogy there. Exactly. Um, But uh, in this film, they, they're, they're sort of wandering leads them together at the night of the masquerade ball. Yeah. Uh, They come together, they dance and then you know life separates them again but it it wasn't really a romance it was just kind of a, an admiration for two free spirits yeah and and the reason i wonder if she's like actively like like an envious of hulo i say that because of one of the elements of this film that is lifted directing off directly off of sporting impressions mm. which is the tennis match now before we talk about that i want to point out to that 
we saw one tennis match in the cup you and I both watched. Okay. There's another one. A whole other tennis match. I'm uh, setting down my microphone. <laughs> Go on. You're just so upset. Um, now, uh, in the original cut of the film, so as we said before, um, he took out three major scenes. The first one is the first tennis scene from the theatrical cut, which you can see on Criterion, where Hulo is bested on the court. Mm. So in the theatrical cut, when he goes to the souvenir shop to get the new racket and does his little thrust move, which I love his little thrust move. <laughs> it's like, I, if I ever go play tennis now, I'm going to do that and see who recognizes that reference. Um, when he goes there, that's him building up his confidence to beat him at the game again. And additionally, in the theatrical cut, there are alternating shots of, as they're playing tennis, kids are playing ping pong as well. Mm-hmm. Whereas the ping pong scene in our edit that we watched is off screen and with uh, Hulo in the lobby with his American old lady groupie. Like, because American ladies love Hulo. Amer- American old- ladies love yeah, Hulo. Especially old American ladies. <laughs> we have that in common. Grannies love Hulo. Mothers lock up your mothers. <laughs> Here comes Tati. Here comes Tati. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, Because what we get in the version that I watched Mm -hmm. is um, we get one quick cutaway shot to Denis, the little boy, with a ping pong paddle. Yeah. And he is mimicking the move. Yeah, because he he is admiring Tati. Mm -hmm. And that's the the other thing. These children admire Hulo. They really admire Hulo. Yeah, and they will... um, They do enjoy Defet to a degree. Mm -hmm. And then they will throughout at least mon uncle that's what i'm getting from the I, I'm, I have a feeling i'm gonna cry in mon uncle so I'm well, let's find bra- out ra- bracing for that um go ahead and, and finish the description oh yeah no i was gonna say that like so to me the idea of him taking out that tennis scene because he takes out that tennis scene he's removing traditional character arcs because he ostensibly doesn't want character arcs in this movie he right. doesn't want a beginning, middle and, middle and end. He doesn't want a traditional by the book script ending, like a back to one or a realization or a save the dog or save the cat. As soon as you brought it up, the screenwriter in me was going, of course, that's the missing ingredient in the tennis match. Like what were the stakes in it? But the, but in the, the stakes were, version, he was bested. Yeah. But this is he also, had to get his swagger back. And, it, exactly. Which this, this, this scene, by the way, it was pointed out by the theorists that like tennis and to an extent kayaking weren't really middle class activity yeah exactly and they were not really made fun of in in films in america especially Mm -hmm. however tati was using these as early as his pantomime years and in sporting impressions in the in in his show so he uses that as a character arc in that first cut and then years later he decides it works better for the aesthetic that i want as an artist to take this out so instead of like adding Jabba the Hutt into the tennis match, Mm -hmm. he removes the scene entirely. Consequently, he takes away character arc and character development. When we get to Martine here, you know, like she's still watching it. It be the, the benefit of him taking out that first scene is that the interaction with Martine feels more spontaneous. Mm. And I like that spontaneity. Because it doesn't rely on our traditional tropes. I do like living in a world. Otherwise, I wouldn't be a fan of Lord of the Rings movies and the Hobbit movies. Mm-hmm. If I didn't like living in a world, I wouldn't wouldn't care. I like living in that world, and consequently, interactions like that 
do feel like when you meet somebody randomly on a vacation or at a convention or at a at, at a fucking like social gathering and whatnot. Like you're a not business trip. Yes, you're not planning on it. You didn't set out to ogle a man who awkwardly thrusts his tennis racket, but you did. You know, and you are you enjoy it, and you almost kind of crave that same freedom because the person right next to you is saying, "Oh, that's so silly! How could you find that even remotely amusing?" That's what I feel when I feel like Martine's envious of that freedom. Mm. In the theatrical cut, it's implied that Martine is stuck in a routine more often than not. You get that a bit in um, our cut as well, just the um, sort of the Rapunzel narrative in the uh, signifiers. Yes. You know, she um, she shows up and she's introduced and she immediately goes to her tower, more or less. Yeah. She shows up at the beach and then she checks into her room, which is on the second story. It's kind of a high second story. She's maybe 30 feet up overlooking the town. Right. And then she comes out on the balcony um, and is observing from above and from afar. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I thought that going in, like it's kind of that, it's not a, a princess narrative, so to speak, but like she is kind of cloistered away up there and she's chaperoned and... Um, he kind of plays on your expectations with imagery. What you expect that imagery to represent is not necessarily what it's going to represent. Um, and I do think that that's his attempt to break down the narratives he starts with in Jour de Fête. He really, really does not want to do the same thing over again to the point where he's literally going to radically change his entire modus operandi in order to achieve that. And there's a shot in this movie by the end that is also missing from our cut um, in, in our respective together cut here. In the theatrical cut, there is a shot of when they all leave for vac- leave vacation, mm-hmm. Martine is on a train home, going home and she's being handed photographs from the trip. And one of the photographs handed over by her relative is like, oh, and here's one with that Hugh Lowe guy. And she looks at it longingly in a way that she isn't looking at the other photographs. That's something that, that's another beat that I I missed yeah. in this film. There is a love story the in that original version. Viewer. Yeah, but not a love story in the traditional sense. I really think it's like- It's um, almost like Lost in Translation. Yeah, except just the subtext. Yeah, you know, just the subtext. And another one could be compared to a Ballyhoo one we did, which is summertime. Except the romance isn't explicit. Explain that to me. I actually haven't seen that one. So summertime deals with Catherine Hepburn um, vacationing in Italy and falling in love with a man, but uh, the twist is that he's a married man. No, we've all been there, folks. Yes, but we but she wants to have her summertime fling. Mm-hmm. You see, that's why I, David Lean decided to do it because I thought that was rather clever. You see, because it's a summertime love. Now, I think that this film though benefits from that being removed, even though I like that emotional intent. It's really difficult because both of these cuts are really good. It's not like you can, like, I can't say what a definitive cut of this movie is. But how fascinating to have the counterpoint. You were getting at it, the difference with Lucas, like, carpet bombing the rest of history (laughs) so that you only get, you know, the bastardized, annoying version. And his impulse is always to add so much more. Yeah, he's trying Um, to look at a market value and what will appeal to the next generation. But I think to have these two versions and be able to watch them back to back and know that they're both made by the same filmmaker just at different ages and different stages in his life where he's um, gotten different priorities. Maybe he's gotten a little less um, conventional in in what he wants to show you. Mm. 
he's kind of coming back and going, you know, it was all in there. I just, I had a, a few too many beats. Yeah. And, um, and so that's when he decides to pull back a little bit, which in a sense is actually kind of wonderful. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, one of those, one of those gags that like among the gags that he takes out one thing that he brings back and I was wrong from an earlier in our discussion the, the there was the script process for this film was as far back as 1950 and okay. there were ideas in this film including something involving the kayak scene so the kayak scene has a lot going on in it first of all he's painting something in the kayak before he breaks it and there's a paint can in the in the water on the sand but it's getting carried away by the water by the tide and then it keeps coming back to him this is like a marvelous special effect uh, of cinema this has to be a string right i all i could figure out is there's a there's a string we can't see that is like gently lifting the can up enough for it to have buoyancy and be carried by the water and then when it needs to park, the string sets it back down. Yeah. Um, but even then, like, they're not rotoscoping out the string. Like, there's no green screen. No. It's this one uh, wide shot that you're getting with an occasional, like, um, you know, he'll switch the directions. But when it cuts away and that little bucket makes a journey around the boat. <laughs> yeah. And then Tati's looking and going, oh, I thought the bucket was on the right. Yeah. I and then he puts on it the on the chair. Now. Puts it on the chair. The chair floats away and then reparks. Yeah. And that's when we get him going out in the kayak. Mm-hmm. And as he's kayaking, by the way, he's hearing the revolutionary going like, the bourgeois have been mm-hmm. fat catting for too long. And I'm like, yeah, 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 I'm going to go boating. <laughs> yeah, you know, he's not wrong, but yeah, I'm on vacation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I almost feel like Hulot's just going like, you know, that young man has a point, but um, I am tired. <laughs> yeah, well, that's funny too about his point of view is like he's presenting you with kind of like the petite bourgeois and then he's also like... Middle giving you like kinda. the young Marxist and then Hulo's like right in the middle like he's clearly like of the working class mm-hmm. but he's old enough to have at least uh, some kind of a safe you know he's got like an old car he kind of like lives within means yeah he um, he's, and he's, he's very well mannered that's the one uh, speaking of which the one comparison that I think brings him into view of Chaplin's tramp right is that his um, his manners and his world outlook are, are elevated above his status. Mm. Like Hulo has a very much kind of a, an old timey chivalrous gentlemanly uh, view of how he treats people. He barely touches Martin Eats neck when they dance. Like no, he, no, there's like that beat where he looks down the back of her dress and then he corrects himself and he touches like the yeah. nape of her neck basically yeah, with one her, finger. Yep. And then he does this palm move when he mm-hmm. finally gets around her neck yeah, or back, you know? Yeah. But he's constantly defending her honor. Like he'll, he kicks a guy who he thinks is watching her change. Turns out he's just taking a photo of his family. Yeah, um, which, by the way, that has some uh, film uh, history uh, precedent attached to it. Go on. So um, according to the scholar, and they showed a clip of this, is that he, uh, the uh, there's an in-between sort of work within this. Emile Reynard's Autour de Un Cabine uh, from 1893. It's a limited full-color animation piece where the portion that they show is a gentleman peeping in on uh, those dressing tents outside on a beach mm-hmm. and a woman behind him kicking him. And so he does a different version of that, but he also subverts our expectations because we've established that this businessman is not just obsessed with his business. He's also an amateur photographer. He's an amateur photographer. <laughs> and, uh, oh, and um, he's taking pictures of these families. And he, from the from the blocking and the way everything is set up, it's suggested that he thinks he's peeping in on Martin. Martin. And yeah, so, Hilo sees Martine come out of the changing tent to grab retrieve something from her mother. She's yeah. only wrapped in a towel. Mm-hmm. And then she goes back into the tent where um, she must be disrobing in order to change. 
Um, Hulo's pretty polite in averting his eyes after he sees her. Yeah. He then is casually walking around the cabin and he sees um, just in the background a, a stooped over figure whose face is out of view behind the cabin. Yeah. And Hulo immediately like... Kicks him and then runs away. <laughs> yeah, kicks him and then runs away. He uh, He's the hero and then the coward in, in one scene, and, but also the invisible man. Yeah, and the businessman, by the way, doesn't realize it was actually Hulot, and he thinks it's another guy, and he corners that guy into a stall. And That's looks beautiful. Th- he looks in that stall with like a fucking death glare. <laughs> that happens a couple times, because there's another gag very similar where a man's painting a boat. Um, and right as he's getting to the letter T and he's doing the top uh, and the horizontal winch, cross. The winch breaks, yeah. The winch uh, breaks or is sabotage? Oh, sa- sabotage, sorry. I, I feel like it could go either way. I think it's kind of implied that Hulo maybe did something to it. He at least has an air of guilt. Mm. But uh, so the winch uh, is Real- uncoupled. Yeah. It releases, the boat starts going, and then the man ends up drawing this very long <laughs> squiggly, top, line. squiggly line as he's painting it. And they immediately blame a kid, by the way. Well, yeah, he, kids... Did you touch the winch? Of course not, sir. And then he's looking around. There's the old man with the cane who's also looking a little sheepish, but mm-hmm. he keeps observing. And then it pans over to Hulo. And Hulo's doing this bit where he uh, immediately pretends like he's drying off. But as he loops the towel behind his back, he catches a pole. Mm-hmm. And he does this whole <laughs> pantomime where he's drying off, but he's just like running the towel back and forth on I, this pole that's behind him. I took a photo of a couple screenshots of me rewatching it today. And that was one of them. Cause I'm like, this is just too funny. It's a really, it was the first gag uh, that made me like really chuckle. Yeah. There's another imagery piece go that makes me giggle involving our revolutionary, um, our progressive uh, uh, anti-bourgeois friend. Mm-hmm. Um, he, there's a shot of him in the foreground um, when uh, Hulo is going to the souvenir shop He's in the foreground on the lower uh, left hand of the frame. And in the far right end of the frame, we have Hulo entering with a paper version of his hat. Yes. So it contradicts to me the uh, uh, the educated elitist value that that could be a, a st- that could be seen on it. I don't find intellectualism elitist by any stretch. But the implication of that juxtaposing to a working class citizen walking by in carefree with a child running up behind him. And the guy kind of gives him a look of just like, Ugh. like, it's not disgust, but it's just like, uh, whatever. I'm, I think it's, I'm, I think it's disgust. I think that that guy is the one that's throwing stones the whole movie. And yeah. And he, uh, not only well, he's throwing stones, but also trying to catch fish. It's, it's very, yeah. very, no, he's the man with no friends. He's like very much the anti Hulo in that like no one can stand him, but also like, yeah, he doesn't really serve any kind of like whimsy. His only friend might be madman months from fucking Barton Fink. <laughs> <laughs> um, um great if john Co- goodman just jumped into this movie all of a sudden <laughs> i'll show you the life of the mind right <laughs> um but with the other but in, in that in that mind frame though of the beach mm-hmm. you know like that there's so much language in here to show hulo inconveniencing the the the, the community mm-hmm. and it's and that's what i say it's inconveniencing it's eternal inconveniencing and at the same time hulo himself is put upon by fate itself like he's he he can't win um he he kind of like uh, uh, the term i've he- heard is milk toast like it's just kind of like he just kind of like 
stuff happens to him and we see it as unreasonable because we know the origin point of it. But the beach and the hotel are the key moments for this. At the beach, they have that exercise group and they have a mid squat and he holds on that shot mm-hmm. for a good long time and we're wondering why. And then we cut to a shot of the the exercise instructor fixing Hulo's pole. Yeah. And then the other one is, is actually Hulo's entrance. When he opens the door... I'm and, glad you brought this up. Yeah, when he opens the door and the wind is blowing in on people, first of all, really quickly, one of the things he changes in those cuts is the sound. There's originally a radio announcer talking about the state of the country, mm-hmm. and he switches it with music, mm-hmm. operatic music. So that's the big change in it. And he also tightens some shots. But anyway. Oh, good to know. Yeah. Because he introduces the storm uh, just with the sound. Yeah. It's, it's strictly you hear wind blowing. Yeah. There aren't really any visual signifiers that it's windy outside. Mm-hmm. But you hear wind blowing and you know what wind blowing sounds like. Yeah. Um, and you see it visualized too with people's mustaches flying off in one direction and tea blowing. In oh, well, that's once he opens the door. I yeah. mean, like as he walks up. Oh, as, as he walks, he walks up. up, you hear the wind. Yes. And then, yeah, uh, Hilo opens the door. It. We were doing kind of this group all the ensembles gathered together in the common area where they often are um, being, you know, boring. Yeah. And then cool guy Hulo comes in and he opens the door and immediately a gale blows in. Mustaches are flying. Yeah, that great gag where the woman is trying to pour tea and it's landing in the other cup because it's blowing so hard. Um, I always like gags like that. They seem cheap, but I'm just like, no, that's that's delightful. Also, like hard to pull off. Oh yeah, that's that's the other thing. I'm just like, how the fuck did you do that, you magic man? There's another uh, his sh- his um his skill with effortless blocking that you know comes from rehearsal. Do, do you did you notice that that blocking in particular comes into effect when he's turned around with the fishing pole yes. bent? And then it kicks the back. I watched that uh, several times. I don't know how he did it. Like, obviously it's rehearsal, but right. what what he's so good at is um, he's rehearsed this gag to death. They figured out exactly where the blocking needs to be, where the man needs to stand, where he needs to plant his uh, pole, how he needs to flex his pole. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can imagine they do a run through where they get it all right. Mm-hmm. And then when they play it for reels, um, he manages to have everyone hit those marks but while while seemingly paying no attention, like it's all by feel, it's like in braille. It's it's beautiful to watch. I watched that so many times. He, I rewound it a bunch because I was trying to like freeze frame and being like, it's it can like can we see that he might have a mirror, like a feasible vantage point where he has a mirror where you can see behind him for the cue. No, it's like proprioception. Like they just memorize where their bodies need to be in space. That's a testament to. He's not in vaudeville, but he's in pantomime and those theaters and those comedy music halls in particular. Mm-hmm. Thousand hours. How many times did he do this on stage before he did it on film? Yeah, his awareness of his body in space is a superpower. Yeah, it's, it's fucking glorious. And to his cast. Yeah. It's, Everybody really hits these beautifully. And that's a testament to him as a director because if he can get a cast of people who we conceivably have no idea what their experience is, like I don't know any of these actors. And one thing on this YBR Presents is maybe doing a sides on this cast in like mini episodes, like mm-hmm. brief recordings. But like seemingly these people must have some kind of theatrical training behind them to to even listen to what he's wanting because you've got to communicate. And then play it like it's verite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is something that Clint Eastwood can't do in 1517 to Paris, by the way. Um, <laughs> now, 
the the other gag on that is the proprietor then um, has the bucket of water. Oh yeah, he, and he goes kicks. to close the door, and this happens a few times where right as someone's about to close the door, Hula then will come in and close the door. So the proprietor goes to kind of like donkey kick this door closed. Mm-hmm. Hulo closes the door, and then the proprietor, the action of him throwing his foot back, missing the door, causes him to fumble the pail of water. Yeah, and that's his introduction to Hulo. And then he has to set the bucket down and well, and Hulo tips his hat to him because he's the gentleman. He lives in constant anxiety and fear of this waiter too, by the way. Yeah, the waiter like is always multitasking. What's his deal, it's bro? always <laughs> going wrong. I mean, they make a bad first impression and the waiter decides that he hates his guts. Him and his maitre d', like they're always, always side-eyeing Hulo, always suspicious. Um, they're not giving him a chance, man. I'm sure if they had a beer with him, they'd be fine. Yeah, sit down, you know, like you'd love Francois. Oh my God, they'd love you'd Francois. You'd get along famous. Because they'd probably be able to push him around for a little bit. Yeah, there's that too. Um, I would bring We up, were talking about- Oh, go ahead, yeah. We were just, you were talking about Hulo being kind of a a victim of circumstance. And mm-hmm. I would say like he's a victim of, of time. Like he just, it's the moment where he goes to his room he empties his wash basin into the, the rain roof. gutter yeah. on, on the roof. And then it just so happens that two people, three stories below on the beach, old friends see each other and go to reunite. And right as they're about to embrace, the water comes flying out of the drain pipe, causing them to do like this very funny physical dance Yeah, where they're sort of shaking hands over the water. Yeah. Um, and by the way, that, that seems to kind of like contradict imagery that we are familiar with in film mm-hmm. um of like a reunion setting or some kind of like traditional setting of aesthetic and he's using comedy to push something into it i wanted to tell you because we were talking about how production history on this film is a little light mm-hmm. um this um the the key thing on this is that they're the seaside front town that they were doing stuff on um the beach was discovered after scouting coasts in, of Normandy and Brittany and Tati liked the look of an open air film set and Tati and Jacques Lagrange, um, who was also not just the art director, but also collaborated on the script for this. Um, he modified the setting and the design of the town and the things that they had to build for this were Martine's aunt's house, the souvenir shop, the hotel entrance and the skylight in Hulot's attic room. So like that that shot there, that's a built set. So it's not an extension like Hitchcock would use with matte paintings and such. But it is a um it is an addition that through editing makes the space look bigger. Because there's no like wide vistas that show how big in town this scope is. He's using sound to indicate the scope. And that's what I find interesting about that that little moment there, because he's cutting from a clearly an onset built piece into something down there, which is mm. it's, I just find that fascinating. Like to just to show how editing works with these the films. The man can edit. Oh, you, yeah. Should we go into the two very well edited gags? Yes, we should. I think there was a third one you mentioned as well. I had the one where he is uh, uh, helping Martine's aunts uh, with her luggage. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so the it's hard to describe this on the podcast, but to settle in for a second, listeners, he's helping Martine's aunt... Close your eyes. Close your eyes and imagine that somebody left a suitcase flat on the ground and it looks like a step. At the top of a series of steps. Yes. On and, the front porch of a house. And our, our hero, Hulo, as chivalrous as one can be, grabs those bags, but he can't see past him, but he's going up the stairs vigilantly and diligently. he's carrying the suitcase so high that it's in front of his face. And he sees, he thinks that because he stepped up on the suitcase that there might be one more step and he takes a big step 
and he down goes down and he stumbles and he goes across frame and then the camera pans with sound effects indicating that he's still stumbling and then there's a cut that you can barely notice that then kicks to the outside of the house to indicate his little stumbling journey to then finally collapsing on the ground outside in the backyard. He collapses off frame. Yeah. Also, while he's uh, falling down the back steps, mm-hmm. he catches a piece of ivy that's wrapped around a cherub statue. Yeah. And then we see the ivy unspooling, indicating just like how far he's tumbling. Right. But beautifully edited. Yeah. And it's like, that's the, that's editing I expect out of Scorsese and Schoonmacher. Mm-hmm. That's not editing I expect out of this era necessarily. The editing I'm expecting out of this era in terms of the precision is Hitch and Elma with their scissors. That's mm-hmm. the that's the precision I expect. Mm-hmm. Other films, I expect there to be a lag. I'm happy to be wrong. I'm <laughs> very happy to be wrong. Yeah, it's almost an invisible cut. It's something you see a lot now where you do a wipe from one, one room and mm-hmm. you just have a foreground object really quick that masks the cut. Yeah. He, he does that uh, as he's leading from inside to outside. Mm-hmm. And he also manages to edit. Part of the strength of an editor to me at times is when they know when to not cut. Mm. And in the theatrical cut, I think that's a negative because the scenes lag a little long. But in the atmosphere that he initially intends in an era that was then going to bring on the new wave in France, it works. Mm -hmm. But if Tati is, I don't feel like Tati's a new wave artist. I feel like he's he's, a bit like a carpenter where he's, he's coming in around that time, but he's from the previous generation. He's in the middle. Yeah. He's trapped in between these generations. He's a cusp baby. Which I think is appropriate to have him in a series like YBR is because he is still, coming out of old school aesthetic he only makes six films um i said seven in the last one but i was wrong it was six films along with those short films he's from the old school but he gets to play in the new school with old school techniques Mm. and one of those elements of it is getting to work on location and in a studio which the studio stuff was filmed in i hope i get the right of pronunciation at this bullion billancourt studios um so the there's intercutting between these two, but he's knowing how to do the location shooting along with set shooting like John Houston learned in the Treasure of Sierra Madre at that point because he was really wanting to go out on location for that. And Hitch was doing the same thing with Santa Clara and Shadow of a Doubt. And I do think that something about using all those spaces, but also knowing how long to capture stuff out there in that outdoor aesthetic and knowing how to keep a shot long is brilliant. The We haven't talked about the old couple yet. No, and they they parallel the uh, the nice old chorus lady with the goat in Jour uh, de Fête. Yeah, and they the old, observe. They observe, but also, and the old man in particular observes. The wife is kind of like stuck in a routine. She's of, on vacation. She's as on. Well. Va- yeah, she is because she's like, oh, a seashell, a boat, oh, another, another boat, another seashell, another seashell. And she like looks longingly at the menu and the waiter kind of like gives her a polite like, yeah, okay, like get out. And then, we imagine that they've been here for the last 50 years every summer. That's what they indicated because this is the beautiful part of this movie is that there's no fucking backstory. There's no 500 Bibles I got to read to understand these characters. Mm-hmm. The um, They are representative of that journey. What I love is that the old man is observing Hulo. And specifically, he stares longingly at Hulo dancing with Martine, mm. reaching back to youth. Mm-hmm. 
I'm a sucker for geezer exploitation right here. Mm-hmm. And that theme hit me hard the second time I watched this movie within the new cut. Um, and when he finally gives his address at the end to Hulo. Yeah, spoiler, the old man is one of like three people who appreciate Hulo. Yeah, the other one is the old American lady who, because again, old ladies love Hulo. <laughs> um, the, um, uh, which it is kind of like jarring to hear her speaking English amid <laughs> this French movie. Like, it, it, thankfully, it's sparing. But she is in love. Oh, she loves fucking Hilo. She referees the tennis match. Yeah. She referees the ping pong match. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a whole sequence we'll get into where she's just looking for Hilo because it's the final night. That's when he's uh, he's trapped. He's been cornered in the fireworks shed by some dogs. Yeah. she just She's just fascinated by him. And there is that element of... The American tourist enamored by the eccentric mm-hmm. foreigner, mm-hmm. Um, which in this case is inverted into the country of origin. Mm. And it's different than watching, say, like Hitchcock make To Catch a Thief and having Grace Kelly interacting with Jean Roby, because one, Hulo is not Cary Grant. But number two... Though they um, both come from vaudeville. They do both come from vaudeville. Yeah. Uh, Cary Grant was an, uh, was an acrobat and... Uh, uh, Hulo was, uh, sorry, Tati. They're both the same to me. Tati was, uh, Tati was Tati a mime, would hate son. that. Yeah, no. <laughs> I know he would. Well, yeah, we'll find out, and maybe, uh, maybe you skipped ahead a little bit in Spo- the doc. But spoiler alert: uh, Tati's dead, so I, he, his opinion doesn't matter at the current moment. <laughs> um, Tati's alive and well in our hearts. Yeah, he is alive in my heart, but at the same time, part of the power of that character for me is, is that I, I, yeah. can have that association there, even though, yes. He, he didn't want to do Francois again, and then he doesn't want to do Hilo again, and mm-hmm. then we'll get into it in uh, Mononcle, but yeah, uh, it's what the public wants. Yeah, exactly. And he tries to subvert a, a Hilo film mm-hmm. the next time around. And uh, But to your point. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, go oh, ahead. Yeah. I, oh, no, to my point, the, the, the thing that I take away from this whole feeling of how Hilo affects everybody, ex- especially extends into that old couple. Um because it's like a diametric opposite, like or it's like it's like um, parallel journeys. Um, I'm not as eloquent in explaining this, but because he's cutting back to them so much, as opposed to say others, I feel like the ratio is a little bit more in favor of those old people. Mm-hmm. We are seeing the journey through their eyes as well, and in particular that old man. Like you could almost make the argument that this old man has been down this same vacation that Hulo has been before meeting her could, and i think there's something to be said for that there's that old joke that like your grandma's the one that invented the blowjob <laughs> you know your gra- your i've never elders. heard that joke but uh go on <laughs> oh i'm doing a tight five later uh, uh. <laughs> uh, syntax we're bringing syntax back um no, it's just that idea that like, you, you know, your grandparents to you are these old stuffy people. And then right. we realized that they had like incredibly rich lives. Right. Um, it's the same kind of comedy that hits if you become a teacher and you work in education mm-hmm. and you think back to being a kid and just imagining the teachers like fold up into lockers at the end of the night. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and the old people seemingly the old man in particular, but they, they have this affection for Hulo. Yeah that they don't really have for any of the, they look, um, they look on at everyone, but it's not really with delight. It's just kind of with like a neutral observation. It's politeness. It's politeness or it's like curiosity or sometimes there's a little disappointment even, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, they love Hulo. And so you can imagine that, uh, 
the yeah the old man exactly he he kind of it's like a game recognized game moment mm-hmm. where they appreciate that hulo really is like one of the only people who's on holiday and is relaxing everyone else is bringing their work with them yeah and um and he can't help but admire that he can't help he it's like hope he's it's like you know how old people are always just like oh this fucking generation's going down the fucking tubes mm-hmm. it's he's looking at that and going like you know there's hope there's hope out there yeah there's hope we got uh, some kids and we got hulo and yeah and um hopefully when we make it to the cemetery we won't uh uh, have to worry about where this generation is going. And speaking of that lovely, stupid transition that I've just made, we've been ignoring a very, very popular scene in this movie. Uh, the um, the funeral. It starts with... It starts... Again, sit down, close it, your eyes. Yeah, it starts with... Jean. Jean. Jean, uh, who seems to always be trying to get away from his wife, mm-hmm. it runs out, he misses the bus that everybody's on. Yep. And then Hulo just like races on screen in his car like a superhero get in <laughs> come with me now uh-huh. family <laughs> jean gets in the car they peel out and then 10 seconds later we realize he was in a hurry because his wife comes on screen and mm-hmm. she's both she's missed both rides now yeah uh and they go like careening through the countryside to catch up with the bus and they do catch up with it for a second but their the hood of their car goes down uh, the hood of um uh hulo's car goes down and collapses on him essentially <laughs> I've watched that a few times. That's another weird gag where it seems to just break. Yeah. Um, it, but suddenly his convertible fabric roof just folds forward and now they're driving blind. Mm-hmm. And then they drive into a cemetery. They park the car. They're able to lift the convertible top back up and peer out and they realize they've interrupted a funeral. Yeah. At which point they're trying to be very respectful and very quiet. Um mm-hmm. Hulo, I think, out of a sense of manners and Jean out of a sense of uh, embarrassment because mm-hmm. he immediately <laughs> leaps over a petition and into some bushes and then like he does like that sidle walk like he's an old-timey bandit <laughs> like the yeah <laughs> and um and then hulo immediately begins to uh, attempt to fix the car changing a tire and whatnot i think he's just pulling things out of the trunk oh okay because he doesn't have a flat but no. he sets the tire down the tire is like um it's warm rubber like just the tech back then it's it's actually an inner tube yeah he sets it down the warm rubber immediately sticks to all these leaves that have fallen mm-hmm. uh and then as he picks that back up uh and this is kind of a chaplain moment where something is transformed but yeah. he picks it up and it's now become what looks like a wreath yeah and then immediately one of the funeral attendants walks up who's carrying a wreath yeah and he collects that very respectfully from hulo and thanks him and then walks over and hangs it up. Yep. And then he has other parishioners at the, or uh, other mourners at the funeral helping him push the car out. And then he goes back into the funeral. (laughs) Yeah. He ends up part of the funeral. Yeah. And then everybody seems to think that he's the person that they need to be, uh, sending, uh, shaking hands and saying my condolences to. There's something subversive about that, that I don't, here's where the Hollywood brain kicks in for me, especially in the 1950s. I'm not saying that this is something that you couldn't do in American films. I feel like the only person who would be doing it would be Hitch. And the only way, and he wouldn't be doing it this way because he's not explicitly trying to homage slapstick comedy. Trouble with Harry, which is arguably one of his only three comedies that he ever made, like traditional comedies, deals with macabre imagery in a different way it deals with the inconvenience of a corpse lying on the ground Mm. so in in a and in a sense it's 10 times more subversive but 
this one deals in the same kind of dark humor that I expect out of Monty Python, which it's no accident that Terry Terry Jones Jones did the introduction for this criterion in its earliest incarnation. I didn't even have to watch the introduction to know like, Oh yeah, that makes sense. Half the dark jokes in Monty Python aren't explicitly designed to fully like punch you in the asshole. They are designed to subvert proper behavior and expectation, even to the slightest degree. And that's what he does here. It's not insulting. What it is though, is that it's a dark joke. Yeah, it makes light of this funeral. And then um, I think the real punchline of the scene uh, as it as it continues to go on yeah. is as the you know funeral attendants mm-hmm. or attendees rather are um, giving him their condolences with the family. Yeah. Early on in that um, entourage of mourners, a woman has a feather in her cap. Yeah. And as she shakes his hand, the feather tickles Hulo under the nose and he starts laughing. And that gives everyone there the permission to laugh. And so the scene really ends with um, Hulo chuckling and then everybody leaving in better spirits than before they met him. Yeah. And he even brings some of them back with him to the town. That's right. Yeah. They end up partying. <laughs> right? car, that shot is really dark. And so the first time I watched it, I was I didn't pay attention to it. The second time I was like, they're fucking the mourners are in, they're going back to town with them to party. Is that one of two shots where then it cuts to the wide where um, the, hotel the resort, lights. all the lights start coming on? There's a bunch of them. And one of them is when he goes to that party where they have to take that backpack up. At the cabin. Yeah. And then another one deals with, yes, that car. And then there's another one that I'm not remembering at the current moment. But needless to say, Hulo is responsible whether directly or indirectly with a lot of sounds happening that wake up people. The firework one in particular, they actually go inside Mm -hmm. to show their reactions. Mm -hmm. And I think it's one, a climax to the entire vacation. Number two, if we're talking about the post-war element of this, if you're living in France and hearing explosions going off in the middle of the night, your mind's going to be triggered to air raids, Mm -hmm. bombings, German, uh, the, the Nazi activity or the Axis activity. This yeah, is. We have that blowhard colonel who literally is at attention at his window. Yeah. <laughs> just, and, and he's the one, by the way, who witnesses the shark. The shark, quote yes, unquote. Yes. Um, and I want to bring this up because we're still in the plot here and we're about wrapping up here because, again, we're going to talk about the end here in a second. But this shark scene that we see in the theatrical cut, it starts with the kayak after the kayak. He had broken it prior to taking it out. The kayak collapses in on itself in the theatrical cut. It just collapses in on itself and it sinks a little bit. And that's the end of that scene. As far back as the early shooting of the early drafts of this script in 1950, according to the criterion, Tati was dealing with the idea of it being mistaken for a shark. Mm. He did not do it initially. He didn't film it that way initially. But in 1975, he saw a little movie called Jaws. This is fascinating. So he saw Jaws, and he he did this along with shooting four additional shots at Mark Sumer uh, in the spring of 77 using costumes that didn't match the originals. So that shot, when he's looking out the window at the shark, mm. it doesn't match the costume. That. That is correct, actually, now that you mention it. I remember thinking, who is this third character who looks like the colonel? It's supposed to be the same guy. Um. The the costumes don't match. I will tell you, though, I didn't notice it. 
right I did, away. But I didn't care. Yeah, the gag's so good. And the theatrical cut also because like because the I don't want to say that the other vacationers aren't distinct, but not every one of them has the same personalities as the old woman, the businessman, um, uh, Denny, the mm. uh, the the uh, the 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 fuck the fuck the rich pigs guy. <laughs> uh, the yeah, tax the rich. Yeah, tax the rich. Yes, which hey, maybe we should do that anyway. The uh. But they they don't have not everybody has that same thing. The officer in the military, which is sort of mirroring how his father would rock around on the beach when they would go on vacations as this middle class family, mm. is kind of like the least defined. Mm-hmm. He has a f- couple of moments, and that's it. When he's bragging to a striped guy drinking a uh, striped shirt guy drinking a beer, the guy kind of looks like you know slightly interested. But that's Who I it. I believe is the co writer. Yes, of the film. I believe so too, and so. That's that's what I find interesting about that is is that he chose to reinsert this gag, uh, while at the same time taking other ones out. So it's it lends ability to that. Remember we were talking about how he removes an arc, right? In this one, he's like, not only am I going to remove arcs, but I'm going to add isolated gags that mean nothing to this, and it's all thanks to some little young boy named Steven and his shark movie, who may or may not be sentimental. Yeah, who may or may not be sentimental, and may or may not be influenced by me, Jacques Tati. Mm-hmm. <laughs> by moi, it's all connected. Hashtag that Marvel thing, mm-hmm. and um, but yeah, and then I think we can get to the end now, unless you had anything else you wanted to bring up with this. Um, Gag the end wise, of the cast, or, or, or the, the end of the the end of the uh, the end of the film. Oh um, no, go ahead, and then I just like there are a few things I want to circle back on. Okay, but, um, yeah, well, yeah, no, let's finish the arc. Yeah, or lack lack of arc, <laughs> lack of arc. Yeah, because like the big thing is is that the vacation ends, the world resets. Mm-hmm. Once the world, it's resets. similar to Jour de Fête. In yeah, that uh, you kind of have that day after the party, and the festival packs well. up and leaves town. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which you brought up earlier. Yeah, and so we do the same thing here. Yeah, and then, like I said, in the theatrical cut, Martine. Uh, is looking over the postcards longingly. Here we get the, and I'm not sure how much more information you have on this. Like I got some definition on it from the criterion, but I wasn't really quite clear on it. Um, we get him, you know, the old lady and the old man come up to him and say goodbye and get the addresses and they all leave. The final shot of the version that we both watched is him getting in his car and from the angle of his rooftop, no, it's the angle or, of uh, or, or Martine's, Martine's empty yeah. balcony. Yeah, her which empty is balcony. Which so melancholy. Yeah, like. that's right, yeah. And we see his car driving off, and in the theatrical cut, there's a postmark mm. at the top of the frame. Or not the theatrical cut, the um, uh, the uh, final edit. Right. In the original version, that's not there. And he started putting that in, and what they alluded to was the idea of the absolute image. And I guess if the idea which could feasibly also be an homage to Francois Mm -hmm. as the postman delivering a postcard of this vacation that Mr. Hulot had from France. It's also the idea of the absolute image, like a commonplace image. And to my mind, that means something that summarizes the experience. Yeah, very much so, I think. So then if that's the case of absolute imagery, which I mean, it's a concept that I want to... elaborate on more as we go on with this series because i want to learn more about it but that's the end of the film and it ends with this as you said this melancholy vibe in both cuts of this movie there's melancholy arguably in that theatrical cut there's sentimentality attached to martine looking longingly at the photos and what i think that's missing as well is um it's sort of it seems like a one-sided melancholy like martine's forgotten about him in in the the cut that we watched right 
which, um, which, which may or may not be intentional, but what happens is you skipped one thing mm-hmm. leading up to it that I think is a little important is like Hulo has found a, a community within the vacationers post party. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, to where like he's got his, um, his American fan and the old couple and he's more or less one over Martine mm-hmm. who's always admired him, but they've had a moment. Um, and in a, in a couple moments during the vacation, he makes plans with her and then due to circumstance, he ends up standing her up. And so post dance, um, he's meant to go with the group and they're asking, where's Hulo? Mm-hmm. Um, and he can't be found and it's because his car is, uh, has stalled out and it's being towed. Yes. So Martine gets on the, the bus without him or gets on the group without him. Yes. And we get that car gag. Yeah. Yeah. They all leave. Um, that's the other gag that I laughed out loud Mm -hmm. and watched a few times, but, um, they leave. Um, but they did sort of miss him. Like they've kind of come around on him. It would seem Mm -hmm. in the afterglow of the ball. Right. And, um, then he shows back up and there are a few other women who he's going to give the ride to. Yeah. It's the English woman. And I think Martin's mother, Mm. Um, so he gives him the ride in the jalopy. There's like the other gag where the bus almost drives his legs over. That's like, which yeah, because of the way the paper is underneath his legs when he does miss them, when he, when he pulls his legs in so that the trier doesn't run him over, that he pulls up the paper and then he looks underneath to see that the tire tracks. It's one of the best gags <laughs> and we'll like, uh, we can kind of get into that when we're like isolating things. Yeah. But that's, that's sort of like when you borrow from like the Harold, Harold Lloyd. Yeah. The moment where he pulls his legs in mm-hmm. and he's seemingly blind to the car coming and it's all just timing, but like he really almost gets run over. Um, good little stunt. Yeah. And, and also it, it, I, I was imagining what was going on in Hulu's head to a second was just like, I can't die. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a god. <laughs> um, but yeah, so then he's driving the ladies. Something goes wrong with his little car again. Mm-hmm. He's trying to fix it. And then the car, um, as he's jacking it up, um, it falls off the jack and it just starts rolling downhill. And then he's chasing the car. Mm-hmm. He chases it onto a private <sighs> estate. That's right. And then all of a sudden, uh, he's chased out of the estate by these attack dogs mean, who are little mean y- attack dogs. Yeah, and he's afraid of them. Meanwhile, in that estate, in the version we both saw, he's already shooting as the car approaches and you cut to this shot of a of an old man in a wheelchair shooting out at things no, in his estate. No, he's cute by the sound, I would say, in the version, that the theatrical version. So in, in the theatrical version, I remember seeing a longer cut of it where he gets out the gun and starts shooting. In this, I think he um, he omits the visual introduction of him getting the gun out. Yeah. But he's not shooting until um, the horn falls off the car and then starts sounding right. like a duck. That's right. So and he then omits, we get off screen shots. So that's a shot where he eliminated the shot, but he kept the sound effect intact. I think it's him realizing he can do the same gag with less. Ooh. Damn, that's sad. God damn it, Tati, you're great. Tati, uh, oh. yeah, we stand. But... Um, that that great gag plays out mm-hmm. and then we cut back and like his real fans like his real writers you know like <laughs> they're asking about him it's mostly the american lady but yeah she, and denny like they're kind of looking for hulo yeah and we cut to like his empty plate and the boy is just sitting and s- like sitting by the empty plate and the maitre d can't leave the room because the plate's set on the table so he's just like staring at his watch yeah going, like, everyone's wondering where's hulo and then we find out that the dogs have cornered him in this little shed. Yes, and that's how and he, he spent gets the to... whole day hiding in the shed. Yeah, and that brings us to 
the fireworks. The fireworks. Yeah. Um, which is just like his assault on you know uh, this this rigid vacation. Correct. Yeah. And and then we get the next day where yeah where we leave. Um. And and you know what? I have another one that I that it's a through line throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. One of his earliest things that he does on vacation is um there where we have a wide shot out in the lobby, and it's serene i guess blandly serene and then suddenly you hear big band music just jiving and grooving and yep. like everything's like popping and it's it's hulo's house party come on into my room and everybody goes in and sees that he is sitting there still as a fucking statue eyes closed eyes closed listening his pipe listening to big band music which is kind of like how I listen to Jack Benny programs. I just sit there still with my eyes closed and b- crank it up to an annoying level. He's a somnambulist. <laughs> I would love to see Hulo and Caligari. <laughs> Dope. He, Caligari, it, it deals with angles, you see, mm. and he just slants forward, you see. <laughs> that's, his, that's his trademark. He's naturally German expressionism, um, just as a person. Now, uh, that shot carries on in a through line when that music starts playing again and they automatically assume it's gotta be Hulo. Gotta mm-hmm. be Hulo. The lady, the the American lady hops up just beaming and runs to the room and then everyone else like begrudgingly and annoying, uh, annoyed follows. Mm-hmm. They open the door and it's Denis. It's Denis. Sitting still. He is so enamored by Monsieur Hulo that he's... Uh, he's copying his hero. This is a kid who's been annoyed by every adult in the film. Like he's just a little mischievous kid and every adult's either scolding him or boring him. And then Hulo's like the one hero that he has. He was literally, I will say this is one naughty kid behavior. Burning the sleeping. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's just fucking rude. (laughs) He's got a magnifying glass and there's a man sun tanning uh, (laughs) with his hat over his eyes. And and then he just keeps, Moving the magnifying glass over his stomach and just burning it. I think because he sees that he burned a hole through the fucking tents that he can do the same with a human. <laughs> yeah. That's a horror movie I want right there. <laughs> Be a really bland horror movie, but like not much happens in it. But that was the other one that I wanted to bring up is the idea that like Hulo is not just a character that uh, appeals to these older people. He appeals to these younger people. The only people he doesn't appeal to are these like stuffy, boring, yeah, bourgeois types. These like middle class, modernist, post-war, And people rigid. in his own age range too. Yes. Yeah, yes. that's that's something that I found interesting. Authority is, figures. Yeah, it's almost like it's the same way to how the audience for this film would be found. Feasibly, people our mm-hmm. age mm-hmm. are not going to be in touch with the Tati humor until we get older or if we saw it very young. I thought about you interesting when interesting I thought point. about this because you said you saw it with your grandfather when you were younger. And while it didn't attach to you, it's something that clearly stuck in your head to put, pick up again. Mm-hmm. So a seed was planted in you that way at a very young age, the way that Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy had that seed planted in me with fun and fancy free. And then I started learning about their radio work or watching duck soup for the first time and then going back and watching all of their films with the Marx brothers um, or Jack Benny, which we'll talk about influences and legacies later on that. But I will say that like one of those things about it is, is that Tati's style of humor in its earliest forms to me thus far seems to be appealing to the old and the young. Mm hmm. And never the middle shall meet unless 
we're talking about cinema enthusiasts and writers for Kahi do cinema. <laughs> right, right. Um, and that was just the one observation that I wanted to take out of like the entire movie. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting, valid point. The way that he, he as a counter-establishment figure kind of like subverts his own age range. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, the way that I came about having the Criterion box set that is now sitting on your table as well. Yeah. Um, was maybe like... Eight years ago, I was walking into Barnes and Noble, and the Criterion was fifty percent off. Right. And visit um, BarnesandNobles dot com for more information. Actually, yeah, you can. <laughs> uh, I just picked up a sweet little haul. Yeah, I'm I'm waiting until the twenty third because we know it's coming. Charles Foster Kane is coming to four K. Oh. Mm-hmm. I didn't even have a Blu Ray player, Zach, oh. and I just bought this in Blu Ray. Oh, that's a that's awesome. As like a, I was like, I don't know why, but I have to own this Tati box set. Oh. And then That's great. Uh, I've just held on to it. And I finally this year got a Blu-ray player. Yes. Good. I'm glad that this story had a happy ending, not a melancholy one. <laughs> I drove away <laughs> and the Blu-rays were sitting on a balcony <laughs> waiting for you. And then there was a Barnes and Noble's insignia on in the corner. <laughs> so the film ends. Yeah. With uh, everybody's packing up and everybody's having their like goodbye. It was a wonderful summer kind of moment. Yeah. Um, enthusiastically pumping hands and we should do lunch sometime. Yeah. Um, They're getting ready to go back to Rydale High and sing Tell Me More, Tell Me More. Yeah. Yeah. They're getting ready to um, go back home. I mean, in all reality, they're getting ready to go back home. To a mundane life that they were already fulfilling in the fucking they vacation. they fucking brought with them on vacation, <laughs> you goddamn boars. Um, you animals. And, <laughs> you and, rigid animals. And Tati's coming up to the group and one after the other, basically, he's like third wheeling every single goodbye. He's walking up and he's ready to, you know, wish everyone a farewell mm-hmm. and shake hands and tip his hat. And he'll stand um, on the periphery of one conversation yeah. and make eye contact and they'll notice him. And then they'll kind of do like the look away, scratch the back of your neck. Yeah. Um, just like overly not notice him. Yeah. And it's, it's really brutal to watch. Um, because for the listener who hasn't seen the film yet which i i I really hope you've watched the film before listening to this obviously the goal is that you watch the film yeah it's not but as long as you're watching it you'll understand why it feels sad to us when we see it hulo has earned our love and affection over the course of the however wrong time depending on how long of the version you watched Mm. And to watch people just neglect him all of a sudden. Just snub him. Yeah. And it happens, It maybe, I think it's kind of that rule of threes. It happens like in three different conversations. Mm-hmm. And then he realizes that he's, you know, a, not a man of these people after all. Mm-hmm. He's a, a man apart. Yeah. And um, he wanders down to the beach where all the kids are, all these like feral kids. <laughs> and um, they're playing with sand and he sits down with them yeah. and they accept him. And he burned his nose, which he actually did burn his nose oh, on set. Oh, yeah. 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 That was um, that was an interesting little fact I to read. <laughs> it also kind of points to the, not to bring it to necessarily to modern day situation. It's in that but take y- yes, that we see. That's what, I was, that's what I was led to believe from yeah. from the way that it was described in the theorist book. Because, yeah, his reaction is a, a little more violent than. Yeah. And onset safety, and especially in those days, is not what, not what it is today, despite recent happenings. There is like, oh God. there is a daredevil attitude though, that 
you do have to admire it out of these comics who were like literally putting they're putting their lives in danger i think is like kind of what it comes down to. yeah it's their own like irresponsibility they're their own stunt exactly because they were trained in vaudeville like keaton in the fucking general pulls this shit constantly and you're wondering how the fuck he didn't die it turns out he was drinking a lot and that's how he got through most of this but the the body stays limber yeah that's um, getting beat up as a kid like that gag as a kid where it's just a matter like look at this kid you can smack him around yeah (laughs) a little rubber child it's it's i don't know how else to describe that moment but after all of that and after he's been burned and to watch that snub, it's almost like because the vacation is over, Hulot is of no concern to them anymore. Mm. So they now have the ability to just tune him out. It just, it just like dipped my, it dipped my spirit watching that. <laughs> yeah, it's a fucking bummer. Yeah. And it, it's reminiscent kind of of that same energy that like, uh, I, I was also really big into Cats when I was like, the same age I saw this movie, I, I was big into cats, like yeah. from the T.S. Eliot book, yeah, um, to the musical. My great aunt um, had gotten me that book um, when I was like really little, and I kind of learned to read, yeah, with that like silly, absurd, little, stupid book about cats, yeah. Um, uh, but there's that that idea of like the old vaudeville cat, yeah, who had the heyday, and now he's like disheveled, uh, which is like I'm I'm not cats literate. But I'm assuming that's the Ian McKellen role. Is the Ian McKellen role in the movie? Okay. Um, but yeah, he's the he's the one that's like you. You didn't see me in my day, oh. and and I used to be this thing. And he's like, um, uh, means I'm gonna cry watching Cats, aren't I? Or uh, no, that movie's uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> no. That that scene's all right. That movie. I I have a whole theory that Cats is just the gayest. <laughs> like, um, well, not. I'm not saying that even. No, not derogatory. No, dar- it just like I think it's like because it it hits like pre-AIDS epidemic. Mm-hmm. Like I think it. So it's sort of like this high water mark of uh, gay culture prior to gay panic. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because it's just like such a celebratory, weird like we are people of the night who prance. Yeah. Kind of, isn't that's a different podcast yeah that's like, a different podcast but anyway the but you are saying but i i see what you're saying even though i'm not cats literate i do see the illusion that you're drawing to because he for one moment he danced with martine yeah and won everybody's envy and respect yeah and then to have lost it all at the end and and realized that like even though there was that moment where you know we we all shared a a beat yeah like i'm still i don't belong yeah and i do feel like actively ostracized yeah i'll tell you though there is something within that melancholy i'm an optimist at heart and i do feel like when you watch that loneliness sometimes sterling it takes even just one person to affect you in such a way that your spirit is lifted by the end and I do think it's the old man and the old lady. Absolutely. I don't think he leaves the vacation torn apart. No, no, he isn't able to say goodbye to Martine. Yes, that is film. that is the big that is the big thing. Is that? Um, his, and I think that hurts more maybe than the snub. Right. I'm sure it does because especially in the theatrical cut, that's what's implied. But he finds his tribe. They're they're seven years old, and they play with magnifying glasses. Yep. Uh, or they're 80 mm-hmm. and they just like appreciate a good time. 
And that's kind of like the beauty of Hulot is that he touches a, a spot in us that we get at the beginning of life and that we try to recapture before we leave. And that's like, it's kind of an amazing gift that Tati brought to the world in his Damn, first outing. Yeah, mic drop, but kaboom. Um, but we should talk about the reception of this film because this film, uh, in, in a word, made fucking bank. <laughs> um Made francs. I want to uh, point out that there was more than 5 million ticket sales uh, in uh, France for this film. It's a successful run, my friends. That's a successful run. Um, And fun fact is that uh, Tati on uh, French television on that same special, he recounted a story where he was buying a ticket and entering the theater late and in the dark and sitting by a corpulent man who did not <laughs> recognize the auteur. That's what it says in the language. No, he's, he describes him, he takes a moment, and then he goes, corpulent. <laughs> corpulent. And it's, I, I, since I can't speak French, you just have to kind of give him some kind of, as like, corpulent. And he said, Tati said the man laughed heartily throughout the film and kept nudging him with his elbow saying, what an asshole he is. <laughs> That's my Brooklyn version of a French person. What an asshole he is. Um, and uh, of Monsieur Hulot. So can you imagine that, folks? You're, um, you're watching uh, The French Dispatch. <laughs> which is which is a movie that borrows like very heavily from Tati. Mm-hmm. You can tell that Anderson has an affinity for Tati in because one of, shot in particular mm. um, that we'll talk about because I think it's in Mon Oncle. Mm, yeah. But um, yeah, you're sitting there in the theater and uh, I guess it would be like Jason Schwartzman or Adrian Brody or something walks into the theater and sits next to you mm-hmm. in the dark. You don't notice. You're watching the movie and for some reason you're that guy in the theater and you just keep like nudging the guy next to you who is Adrian Brody and every time he's on screen you're like what a fucking asshole (laughs) just a tear drops down Adrian Brody's face but like the man the beauty of the story is the man is taking so much pleasure in the film yes but like yeah he just is like I I am enjoying so much how much this this Hulo character is an absolute asshole yeah and and it can be interpreted in multiple ways you can perceive that bumbling as jackassery Mm-hmm. Or you can perceive it as childlike innocence. It's one of the two, or 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 several different angles for that matter. It's not limited to those. Just those. When we view a comic figure, we are viewing him through the lens of our experience, and that will dictate how the humor works for us. I'm not an expert on how to make somebody laugh. I can't get on a stage like some of our stand-up comic friends. What I can do is observe with how the experience relates to me and also talking with others about how humor relates to them. And you can't break through it ultimately because humor comes from a a different psychological point in your brain. It's the difference between enjoying light, fluffy humor and enjoying dark, twisted humor. So it's the difference between an MGM comedy and an Ealing Studios movie. But that character is so universal that it can plug into anybody's experience and their reaction will be different, but the appreciation will be the same. Good humor too. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, it's, it's not a, uh, there's only a few other figures that have that universal appeal. And in cinema in particular, it's really just, it really, it's Chaplin, Keaton and Lloyd who have that because of their inability to speak for the most part in their careers. They are, tapping into a universal language from the radio. I think it's Jack Benny and I know I love him, but I'll be objective for a second. 
Jack is the audible version of Jacques Tati because he is constantly put upon, constantly fumbling through situations. I've been waiting all episode to hear this take. Uh, Zach texted me as I was driving in yeah. and I pulled over and read it because I'm a safe, responsible person. But uh, <laughs> this, this is exciting. This is the thesis I've been waiting for, please. So the idea that I've been propo- proposing within Jack's film work on YBR and in the book that I'm working on is that you needed to find something for Jack to do in cinema. And... <clears throat> One argument that I made was that it would be great if Jack were working in smaller intimate films because his characterization of that would be sophisticate, that put upon milk toast gentleman, even if you want to lay into the cheapskate routine, you can do that within reason because on radio it works so well to a universal appeal. It's not too dissimilarly from how Hulot works for people and you insert different opinions on it but still appreciate it on the at mass level. If if somebody like Tati directed Jack, that would have been interesting. Or consequently, if Jack was given something similar to Tati, like he got from Lubitsch, that played in his ability to work with not just looks, but um and static. It's like it's not the same because Jack's not a pantomime and he's certainly not a physical comedian. But the intimacy that we talked about in Hulot and those small, subtle moments, those are things that I think Jack could have probably played well if you gave him the right direction. If you had given him that direction and that character, you would have had a freaking different film career. But the problem is that that environment didn't exist in Hollywood at the time. That that environment had to come from outside the U.S. It wasn't going to come from us because, frankly, the most we were going to get out of that would be somebody like Lubitsch who would play into absurd farce in a good in a good positive way. We don't get this until we have these exports from overseas coming in and showing us a subtler way of doing things. So that's why I said when I texted you like that's that to me is a is a it's a weird comparison. But like Jack is sort of like an audible Tati or, or a dialogue driven Tati. Mm. And what's more, he also knows how to work with sound effects in his radio show, and he knows how to work with silence, which Chati knows how to do very well. So that's why I made the comparison on it. Um, there are other comics he influences, but we will touch on those in a second. But we've got to hear from the critics. we got to know what the critics thought of the era. It's, we just got to know. Because much like the reception of Eternals, we just have to know why it's a rotten. <laughs> like, um, now... Um, First of all, um, my favorite guy to quote, Bosley Crowther, he re- he review he reviewed the film and it said it contained much of the same visual satire that we used to get in the silent days from the pictures of Chaplin, Keaton, and such as those. He said the film exploded with merriment and that Tati is a long-legged, slightly pop-eyed gent whose talent for caricaturing the manners of human beings is robust and intense. There really is no story to the picture. The dialogue is at a minimum, and it is used to just satirize the silly and pointless things that summer people say. Sounds of, sounds of all sorts become firecrackers tossed into a comic, tossed in for comical point. You know, I give Bosley Crowther shit, but man... There's a reason why he was on a critic payroll. He got it. He nailed it. He got it, yeah. Now, he is still an asshole, but that's beside the point. <laughs> that's another different podcast yeah, that the, I can't wait to listen to. Oh, that's it, it's all over yesterday. Your here review and Shamley Silhouette. You just got to like, you, you, you got to just press play and I'll find Bosley on there. Um, and uh, this film was entered into the 1953 Cannes Film Festival where it was nominated for the Palme d'Or. At the Academy Awards... 
Jacques Tati and Henry Marquette, the man in the bar in the striped shirt, yes, were nominated for best story and best uh, best story and screenplay. Uh, at the Cannes, it did not win the Palme d'Or, but it was nominated. As I said, it won the Louis Deluc Prize for best film, which went to Jacques Tati. The National Board of Review called it uh, in the eighth place of the top foreign films of the year. And the New York Film Critics Circle Awards uh, nominated it for Best Foreign Language Film. So he's already making an impact outside of American borders. Hulo, as a character, becomes so popular that Hollywood beckons for him. Right. They want him to do stuff like Hulo Goes West. They want him to like Hulo... Hulo goes to fucking the World's Fair or like Hulo goes to Disneyland. I don't know why that Disneyland was before this, but yeah, Hulo and the Great Train Robbery. Yeah, know. oh, that would be great. That would, Hulo, I mean, Hulo just shooting at the screen directly like Joe Pesci and fucking Goodfellas. <laughs> yeah, but it's like a, a flower squirting water out of a lapel or something. <laughs> That'd be amazing. Um, yeah, I would watch all those films. I like I. It's the kind of thing where less is more, but like at the same time, I'd love to live in a universe where I could plug Hulo into like any scenario and just see what happens. Yeah. And would you believe no. me if I told you that yes. the modern day influence on this particular film in general extended out to one Rowan Atkinson? Because I'm sure you would. I would believe that. Yeah. I would believe that because I believe I heard it out of his own lips. Yep, he did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the sequel to the original Bean movie, Mr. Bean's Holiday, is very much lifted out of Hulo's Holiday, but with Mr. Bean. Mr. And Bean himself as well. like The character is, itself. It's a Hulo. He, ver- he doesn't, he's not, he, Bean's not dumb, but Bean like speaks very little. Mm-hmm. And as a kid, I didn't like Bean because I didn't get that. <laughs> Now, as I'm older, I'm probably going to love the shit out of Bean when I go back to it. <laughs> yeah, we have the box set. At, uh, oh, really? It's a blast. Oh, shoot. That's awesome. But yeah, Rowan Atkinson, uh, hugely. I remember he is talking about being at university um, in this interview that he's giving. Um, I forget what when in his career he's giving this interview, but they're talking to Rowan Atkinson, and he's saying that, like, basically, uh, you know, Miss, uh, Monsieur Lewis uh, Holiday comes out, and he, like, is I think like the president of the film club at at his university and he manages to get a print of the film and he's just screening it like on a wall like guys this is important uh-huh. and people are kind of into it but no one's like as obsessed as he is with it yeah and he's watching it over and over just in a kind of like is this light bulb moment for him that like really ends up forming and cementing what he wants to become as an entertainer yeah and I think that when we talked about the Monty Python comparison, obviously Terry Jones was inspired by him. And, you know, I think that in terms of like where we're seeing this today, I do feel it's a little difficult in the sense, cause like I know comedies exist today. That's not like it's that Marvel didn't kill cinema guys, but uh, there is a, there is a dearth of comedies that play within physical shtick but I do think dramedies benefit greatly from Tati because of observing smaller human moments. Mm-hmm. I feel like Mumblecore takes cues from mm-hmm. that aesthetic that has started with this film uh, and then carries on into the later work. Because Jura Defet is is heavily inspired by films before it. Yeah, it's playing on a on an older tradition, and then Tati's subverting and reinventing with this one. Yeah, which he will do again and again. He, like you were saying, his editing techniques, like. He's he's always he's sort of the James Cameron like of 
of what he's doing because yeah. he's finding the newest technology. Like he'll continue to shoot in a bigger format or in color yeah. or like, yeah, he shoots in a uh, 70 millimeter Panavision mm. when we get to playtime. Mm. Um, so like he's someone who longs for the past and then also races towards the future. Mm-hmm. And then in his own films, it's just a lot of patient observation. I loved um, in one of the interviews, I think it's with the French television where he's talking about, um, sorry, Zach is like writing my levels because uh, <laughs> I don't have a mic stand. Yeah, no, that's going to fix. That's going to be fixed come next episode, guys. So don't um, worry. Yeah, you can <laughs> send money to my Patreon. I have a GoFundMe for a mic stand. No, no, no. I'm getting a um, mic. But anyway, keep going. But he's uh, he's talking about like they're kind of just asking him about like, do you find yourself to be an observant person? And like in great Tati and maybe even French fashion first, he says, no, not really. Like he kind of plays it down and then he launches into the story of like one time I'm sitting in an alley and this guy comes out, this musician comes out of the back of a, of a room where he's been playing and the door slams shut and he slams his hat on and he, and he starts describing this entire moonlit scene, like in incredible detail. And it must've happened like 10 years prior but it, but he's like just recalling all these minute details that he observed because he happened to be in that alley at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you could see that in like maybe yeah. some of the quieter moments in an Apatow or yeah. um, the mumblecore moments. Yeah. Anyone and who has the patience to just really like observe those details, either in direction or in performance. Yeah. it's It, it really is incumbent on, you know, it's it's not to say like you have to appreciate this you can appreciate however you want to appreciate whatever you want to appreciate. But you, but, but if you are looking at those moments, you're going to be rewarded by that lineage. And I think that even broader comedy like a Monty Python benefits from that subtlety because there are subtle things in Monty Python. There's small gags in the background. There's small things in the foreground. There's sound stuff going on. There's other things going on in these elements. Or it's the way that Nick Cage prepares for a role. Yeah. <laughs> Where, you know, he'll be talking about, uh, yeah, when I was doing that scene, I uh, I was actually channeling my iguana. Um, <laughs> like, he, just the... Whatever you got to do to get there, <laughs> you know, like... Yeah, wherever you draw inspiration. That really would be, like, my takeaway for this episode. Just, yeah, you know, you watch Tati and you realize that if you're someone who is not allowing yourself to be bored, yeah, but rather, like... Or rather, like not distracting yourself from board, boredom, yeah, but using boredom to find your own muse mm-hmm. wherever you happen to be. Like, you'll have a more rich life. Yeah, and I think that, like, in in a closing sentiment of this is that one of the reasons why I'm very happy that this has been decided upon as a series is that much like Hitch, Tati is bringing lessons that he learned from others into his work. Hitch did the same thing by watching the silent masters in Europe. And he brought that into American cinema and transformed the suspense genre, the thriller genre, and the horror genre. Tati did that with comedy. And he has indelibly changed the way we've seen films because of this. And we're going to find out more about this, assumedly, from my point of view as we go along. But one of those things that... The biggest, the big thing I took away from this is actually like a philosoph- philosophical life angle which it was like this really good reminder of like all the like work we do to aspire to that drive in ourselves for those things we're passionate about 
this film like really reminded me about like man like i i need to put down my fucking phone <laughs> you know oh for real yeah like that was like a life thing that i took out of it like his observation of where we land in a society that doesn't stop it's like one of the descriptions was that he breaks into the he disrupts the well-oiled machine of this small community Mm -hmm. he really is like a wrench inside the cogs not unlike the same kind of things that get stuck in the cogs in uh modern times he's he's doing a full film of that one moment when chaplin goes in there and gets stuck in the cogs but he's still fixing the cogs because internally hulo doesn't want to disrupt the machine Hulo just wants a fucking vacation. Yeah, he's just a victim of his own timing. He's, yeah. He's just like our offbeat hero. Or like Bruce Willis in Die Hard 5. He was just on vacation, Sterling. Never dropping how much I hate that fucking movie. I hate that fucking movie. <laughs> but anyway, I, that was a fun little joke to go out on. Let's, um, um, yes. One other fun thing. Yes. Oh, absolutely. When I was doing the research uh, today for this episode, uh, I stumbled upon... Do you remember when Ebert put out that book on the great movies? He does have um, Mustard's Hulu Holiday in there. And he um, he's referencing in there, like, speaking of the success that the film was, he has a line that I'm paraphrasing, but he says, basically, there was a time in America where any art house cinema could make their weekly nut. Like, if they fell on hard times, they could just run, uh, do a week of Hulu's Holiday. And they would break even again, like they'd be back on their feet. And that's a testament to this film getting re-released so often, not just in the U.S., but in France. This film was re-released to the point where he could recut it any time he wanted. At the time of that interview that we were quoting a bunch, um, he was about to re-release Playtime. And I don't know what the re-release versions of Playtime entail with. I don't know what we're dealing with yet. because we'll I'm out. Yeah, we're going on the journey. But, uh, you know, that's a testament, too, to something that, like, that doesn't exist anymore. We have a window and we have a market to, to deliver to on home video now. Nobody's, nobody's business relies on one film anymore, which is kind of cool, but it's also kind of sad in a certain respect. Like... A single small film like that can't change the world the way it used to. I'm hopeful that it still can because I'm not like an eternal pessimist on that notion. But it is interesting that like if Ebert's saying that this could save an art house's weekend and like recoup their recoup their money for putting in something else. Mm. That's like an astounding thought. Like this art house film had such great mass appeal, which if we were talking about films that did that, a lot of films in the 90s were doing that. Clerks Clerks is not a small film. Clerks made money. Now, did it make the money that Kevin Smith would make later in his career with, with bigger budget comedies? No, but it made enough to give him a career. Quentin Tarantino, mm-hmm. Pulp Fiction. That's an independent film that grossed $200 million at the box office in 1994. At a time when we had Forrest Gump and uh Shawshank Redemption mm-hmm. which by the way which bombed when it came out uh Quiz Show you know like films like that and yet Pulp Fiction powered house through and I know that this film isn't up everybody's alley and I need to reevaluate it for myself but Napoleon Dynamite that film was made for nothing and that film launched the careers of pretty much everybody in the frame of that movie and that's a film that played for months. Mm-hmm. It never left the I theater. I really miss, um, that's something I miss. I miss uh, 
when a movie could become a sensation and then play for months or come back six months later. Mm. Uh, I I was thinking about that today and I forget why, but um, do you remember the experience of like being a kid and you'd uh, open the entertainment section of the newspaper Mm -hmm. and there'd be like all the little poster advertisements for the movie with just like a quote. Next time you're here, I'll show you some of the ones I cut out for Good Night and Good Luck because I was obsessed with that movie. Yeah, Clooney's directing career is fascinating as well. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that's another podcast. (laughs) Seriously. But um, yeah, you would would open the paper and you'd occasionally see, I remember with Scream, Mm. like it was like re-released six months later and they're like the movie that, you know, scared America and broke box office records. Mm -hmm. Or you'd see something being like, you know, um, like third month in theaters like they would advertise that how as long a point it's of run was having like, yeah yo you haven't seen it yet like see it because yeah and again streaming is going to kill this but, although now i mean i'm always saying rush to theaters because you don't know when something's gonna disappear when something's gonna disappear and not be on again but, but you're i think you're right and like the closest thing that we had to that in the time when we were growing up in our formative years was the expansion from the art house to the mainstream cinema mm-hmm. which which was really about the stadium seating the indie landscape, and I say indie in quotes because every studio had an independent arm. And that led into, and No Country for Old Men was an example of like that film started in the art house circuit. It had a, it had a market on it first before it expanded because you wanted to see if it actually played. Like it was a test. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, honestly, you were talking about James Cameron earlier. I think that's the last movie that got held over for months and re-released constantly mostly at the insistence of James Cameron because he either had an additional cut to show or he retouched the 3D or a pandemic happened and China got it again. Uh, you know, like that's why that box office is still high and overtook Avengers again. So, you know, I do think that there's like, and those ads I remember too, and I remember in particular, My Big Fat Greek Wedding was a big yes. hit. Like that yes. was a monster hit. That film... That made, that film made a lot of fucking money, um, and uh, I. But I I agree. Like I do think streaming will kill that. But again, I do hope that like an equivalent in the streaming world will like something of that nature will come about. Also, it's just a testament to. I don't want to sound like an old hipster, but it's a testament to owning some physical media. Yep. Because you don't know when, um, and that's like with the Apple ruling where they say like, oh, you might have bought it on iTunes, but uh, once we lose the rights to it, like you lose the rights to your purchase, um, you're really just renting it for a long period of time. Yeah. And Um, and there are days, like one of my favorite films, just in terms of something to put on... um, for the person that's like lingering at 1am mm-hmm. and you're like, well, okay, if you're going to sleep on the couch, like we're going to have to watch this. But, uh, it's this film called the uh, catechism cataclysm. Mm. And back when Netflix had everything, like it just popped up as an indie watched it once. It has Stevie little from Eastbound and down. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like the dumbest movie, but it's just kind of a perfect midnight living room movie. Mm-hmm. You can't find it anywhere. Like not even to rent. You have to buy it. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to track down a DVD somewhere. You just reminded me of something that couldn't be applied to this, albeit it is a bad movie. The Room. The Room. The Room will make an art house money at a midnight screening if they need the money. 
Same with are Rocky Horror. Esquire. When are we bringing back midnight movies? Yeah, Esquire Theater. Uh, call the Ballyhoo. Um, we'll we'll run a series of screenings there. Also, find me at the CFEA. I do want to talk to you guys. Oh yeah. Um, here I'll just I'm just gonna message bomb Esquire Theaters now. Um, but uh, no. Um, uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show does the same thing too, and like arguably the amount of movies that are allowed to be re-released in theaters um, under the new uh, guidelines of how Disney re-releases stuff because Disney packages like several different titles Mm -hmm. and they are notoriously difficult to deal with. I know for a fact that they had difficulties uh, at the Shea Artiste getting films for the Hitchcock series that they Mm -hmm. did, which was Hitch with a Twist, which was happening around the time of Shamley. So hopefully, hopefully physical media is still that, still that wonderful saving grace for that material. And, in America in particular, the fact that Jatati's whole work is in this one box set is kind of fantastic. And Sterling, on that note, as we're wrapping up, it's going to be a pleasure going through this entire series with you, sir. Um, I want you to tell the Ballyhoo uh, wh- where they can find you again, um, and we'll tease the next episode. All right, you can find me uh, on the old Instas at Sterlesworth, that's mm-hmm. S-T-E-R-L-I, no, I'm sorry, it's been a long day. S-T-E-R-L-Z-W-O-R-T-H. Correct. Yes. Um, What's my prize? <laughs> you win a, uh, a box of uh, Earl Grey tea. Oh my God, it's so wonderful, number one, make it hot. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you can also uh, find me at the CFVA, the Colorado Film Video Association, where I'm on the board of directors. Uh, specifically, I'm on the uh, membership committee mm-hmm. and the festival uh, outreach. Wonderful. Um, yeah, I would love to get more filmmakers again, local filmmakers involved. Uh, we have a good merch shop right now. Everything that you buy there, um, all the proceeds do go to grants for local filmmakers. So really that money is just going right back into the community. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, help us help you, help us help you. Yeah, and... Um for YBR Presents, you can find me on the regular Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review feed where we talk about uh, catalog titles, um, different directors that may or may not get a series down the line. Um, one series that might also be coming to the YBR Presents feed is the Marx Brothers, but that still needs to be worked out. Right now, you can enjoy that five-hour and 15-minute epic on their year at Par- years at Paramount um, on the YBR feed with uh, Tyler Maybe and Andrew Sanders of Pop Culture Brews. I'm on the Real Nerds podcast each week. And for the time being, I am still co-hosting uh, temporarily the Punk Rock Horror Podcast with Undead Matt. Uh, so check all those out if you so wish to want to hear my stupid voice. Um, on the next episode, we're going to be talking about Mon Uncle. And, uh, I'm so excited. I have a feeling I'm going to cry. But stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen. You may Find hear out my exact tears. Cries. You're gonna, <laughs> they're all, vote, vote whether or not I'm allowed to cry on this show. <laughs> Send in your votes to the YBR Twitter handle. <laughs> yeah, and if you haven't checked, uh, if you haven't gotten a chance to check out uh, Jour de Fet or uh, Monsieur yes. Hulu's Holiday, uh, please do so. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, check out Mon Oncle yeah, before be re- we get there. Yeah, do your research, kids. Uh, you've got some films to catch up on, but thankfully Criterion's got your back. Uh, even Amazon Prime's got your back for a cheap rental if you want to. They're not that expensive. Criterion Channel, however. Criterion Channel's lit. Yep, and it's got all the things that are on that Criterion box set if you want to really go down the digital route. Um, but So there are options. There are ways to explore the wonderful world of Tati, and we will be back to talk more Tati. Join us on the tour. But, the, but until then, Tati to you later, folks. Mm-hmm.